Up next, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on RCR, Reality Check Radio. You're on Reality Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Thank you for tuning in. Ah, Don't forget, email me, inbox at realitycheck.radio. Text me, 2057. Oh, we've got a great show lined up. We're going to start off ah, with my dream, homesteading. Imagine it, building your own house, chickens, growing everything you eat, getting meat from family down the road, homeschooling the kids, the kids out playing in nature. We're going to hear all about it with Dana Thompson, homesteading. And you can visit her wonderful webpage, uh, Fantail Valley. Just Google that. You'll come up with her webpage. And we have Dr. Roderick Mulgan, amazingly, both a medical doctor and a lawyer, and he's going to be telling you, uh, uh, we shouldn't be surprised, should we? The Law Society's got this bright idea. They started off looking at bullying and sexual harassment in law, big law firms, and ended up concluding that what was needed was a statutory requirement that all lawyers follow Titiriti principles principles of the Maori version of the treaty. No one knows what it means. No one knows what it would apply. A lot of debate. Some people say it means two systems of law. Goodness knows. Uh, Got to stop it. The only way to stop it is to get on to lawyer friends, lawyers that you know, your lawyer, tell them to oppose it with a submission by the 31st of May. If they don't want to oppose it, I wouldn't have them as a lawyer. Believe me. No. Uh, and uh, we quite like thinking about things from an economic perspective, and we've got the wonderful Martin Lally coming back to talk to us about how do you think sensibly about speed limits and what they should be? He's going to explain that to us. Uh, You're going to enjoy the show. Like I said, text me, 2057. Uh, Email inbox at readycheck.radio. And thank you so much for tuning in. What I want to achieve with RCR is conversation. And I think we have lost the art of conversation. With RCR, I just hope that people can learn that we can all be different, we can have our own opinions, have our own views, and have those conversations in a respectful way. Because respect needs to be given, it needs to be earned, and I think that we can prove that people of all diverse perspectives, ages, opinions, can have a platform, and we can work and talk together. And so that's what I hope we get to achieve with RCR. Just independent thought alternative thought and I I expect that I will be castigated by many people for offering different opinions but you know as I've said before there is no such thing as a wrong opinion opinions are like noses everybody's got one the exchange of views fair debate no cancelling no interrupting no aggressive responses we want to hear what people have to say Whatever side you're on, and the listener, the consumer, with that information, can make of it what they will. That is the mission. It's a good mission. Thanks for tuning in to RCR, Reality Check Radio. If you like what you're listening to, or even if you don't agree with what you're listening to, then get in touch with us now. You can text us with your message to 2057, that's 2057. Or if you'd rather email us, you can at inbox at realitycheck.radio. 
We would love to hear from you. So get in touch with us now. Are you with Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on Reality Check Radio? Send us an email at inbox at realitycheck.radio. Flick us a text, 2057. Send a text. Love hearing your feedback. And we're in for a treat. Because we're talking to, well, how often have you just wanted to pack up, get away, live in the country, grow your own food, and live free? Well, we're going to be talking this morning to Dana Thompson, who, with her four children, two girls and two boys, and her husband, has done exactly that. And so, Dana, good morning. G'day. Look, I'm so excited to interview you because I want to hear, you could make a TV show out of what you've done. (laughs) Have you thought of that? No. (laughs) Because I imagine there's a lot of low bits too, right, where you're thinking, oh, what have I done? We want to hear about the low bits and the high bits. You look wonderfully healthy and happy. Oh, thanks. That's a a good start. Tell us about yourself. So what we're going to be talking about, everyone, is homesteading and having chickens and growing vegetables and homeschooling and living close with your family and with nature. And uh, that's what Dana is telling us about. She's got a beautiful webpage with all, uh, all, all little helpful tips about what to do, and it'll have a web page thing. But I just uh, googled Fantail Valley, and yep. up it popped. So do that, even while we're talking, and tell us about yourself, Dana. Where did you? Where were you born? Well, I'm a Dunedin girl. Both my husband and I both were born and bred in Dunedin, and well, that's a um, good start. Yeah, great start. And both sets of our parents um, are still staying local and most of our family as well, which is nice. Um, And so, yeah, grew up in there. And when we got married, bought just a typical city block. And um, But paying a mortgage (laughs) was a bit of a shock to the system. So I thought, you know what, how about we start a garden? Um, and I mean, I grew up on five acres and that was, that was really fun. Really enjoyed it. It was a great childhood. Uh, but I didn't really learn much about gardening. So most of it I've learned as an adult, just giving it a bash basically. Um, so we started with a nice, oh, to start with, it was a couple of, you you know, those gray tote bins, a couple of those out on the deck, um, and grew some carrots and some lettuce and stuff, and then put in a bit bigger garden and then, we moved and decided that by that stage we sort of had a quarter acre and we thought we'll get some chickens and some fruit trees and put in a bigger vegetable garden. So you've always had a hankering for growing stuff or was this sort of a, a bit of a financial imperative? It was definitely a financial thing. Um, but once I started gardening, I kind of fell in love with it. It's a weird thing. Like I don't like bugs and I don't like being dirty. <laughs> Um, oh, well, you're talking, the to the, you're talking to the right guy because <laughs> I sort of want to have chickens, but I'm scared of chickens. Oh, that's fun. <laughs> hens, hens, yeah. 
just the look of them, they frighten the living bejesus out of me. But like, carry on. We'll get, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. Yeah. Carry on. Yeah, so you're yeah. growing things and you yeah, don't so like that... being dirty and you don't like bugs, but you're uh, financial imperative growing and then you're thinking, oh, this is fun. What was fun? There was something nice about being outside um, and having your well, that, I'm sure that grounding thing and spending time in nature, I'm sure that influences us somehow because you just feel better doing it. Mm. And there was also just that reward of when it does work, you can put stuff on your plate that you knew you grew yourself. Um, and that reward is quite real too. Um, and so we just kind of just slowly but surely grew more and grew more. Um, and Did then, you plant any flowers? No. At that stage... I only wanted to grow something if it was native or it was edible. So we put in heaps of fruit trees um, and lots of natives and flowers just was not my thing. Okay. Um, more recently, my mother has gotten to beekeeping. And so we've got a hive here. And when we move over to our new place, um, she's going to move most of her hives over there because their property is just a little sort of town section um, and she's currently on like four hives or something on it so she's going to move them all over there and all of a sudden I have this desire to grow flowers which I've never done before <laughs> well that sounds like your life so you're on this section and you're gardening and you're planting natives and things that you can eat like trees uh, yeah. with fruit and then what well then we had by that stage we had two kids and our mortgage was quite high. It was like the dream house that we'd built it. And it was sort of that dream house. But we were having to host international students to make the mortgage payments. Um, and I was, I had, I'm a nurse by trade and I had to go back working um, just to make mortgage payments. And so um we decided. So you're working, you're working for the bank. Yeah, exactly. Spending our lives working to pay for the house. Yeah. And so we decided we would look at building again. Well, actually, it was a renovation was the first thought, but eventually we decided to look at building again. And we were looking for a quarter acre section for under 100,000. So this was about eight years ago, which in Dunedin, there were a few around, but they were sort of in the cold, shady, horrible parts of town that I wouldn't choose to live in. And then we came out here to look. Um, we're about half an hour south of Dunedin. Came out here to look at a five-acre block that's actually the block across the road from here. Um, and I turned around and saw the 10-acre block that we're currently on um, had a sign up. And I was like, oh, there's that 10-acre one that didn't have an address. And so we ended up getting 10 acres for under 100,000. <laughs> no way. Yeah. And you got it when you say south of Dunedin. So we all know where Dunedin is. And you yeah. hop on the motorway. And do you drive past the airport? Where When you say south of Dunedin, where am I heading to? You take the coast road. So we're in Tyree Mouth. So you go take the coast road down rather than the um I see the scenic rather route. than the motorway. Yeah. It's beautiful. It's a lovely part of the country. And so if you go on the coast road, it's half an hour out of Dunedin. Yeah. So how many kilometers would that be? I'm not sure. Uh, so many. 30, maybe 30, 30 or 40, okay. I think. Okay. Yeah. You drive good. Okay. And do you have when you say you're on the coast road, do you have the ocean or is it a distance? Yeah. You can uh, see it. From, from here, we can see it from our gate. We're about a kilometre as the bird flies our actual house from the sea. Okay. Um, but driving into town, it's right along. Yeah, it's just beautiful. You can so see you bought thing. 10 acres eight years ago for under 100000 Oh, my goodness. 
Yeah. But it had no house on it. It had nothing. It was pasture. Um, there's quite a bit of old man gorse here as well, which has been brilliant firewood. It's the best firewood you could imagine. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we have set this place up. We've got a house. Um, I've put so, in a food forest and orchard. We've got so sheep and goats. One step at a time. Yeah. You're still living in Dunedin. You've got yep. 10 acres. So, and you just casually say we put a house in. How does that work? Uh, there's a local crew of builders here. Oh, <laughs> funny story. The first, when we first bought here, there's a lot of forestry around and the very top corner of here had 17 pine trees in it that would need to come down before we put the house in. So my husband and my dad were here cutting the trees down and one of them twisted and took out the power line and it took out the power for the whole area. Um, and almost started a fire. They had the fire brigade out here. How to get to know your neighbours. Exactly that. So my mum said, how about I make some scones and I've got some German cream and we'll go around. And so the next day me and mum went around and apologised to everybody and gave them some scones and cream and, uh, cream and jam. Um, and that's how we met the local builder. <laughs> ah. um, and everybody was very gracious about the fact that we'd taken their power out just before tea time. Um, on a Saturday evening. Um, and yes, no one was hurt. Lovely. Hey? And no one got hurt. No, and no one got hurt, thankfully. It was, yeah, yeah, <laughs> very lucky. Um, and so that's how we met the local builder. So we ended up buying, we asked Gold Pine Sheds to up-spec a shed for us up to sort of housing standard. They have to have extra bracing and stuff um, for a shed to actually be transferred to being a house so we got the engineer involved and did that and so we got the kit set dropped off here and the local digger guy dug up the place put in the driveway got everything ready and then the local builder and his team put the shell up for us and did the internal framing Um, and then my husband and I sort of oh and installed things like the bathroom and the fire those sorts of things that you can't do yourself really um, but my husband and I took over from there and we um, insulated and lined the walls and we moved out here in the middle of a hailstorm um, where the fire wasn't working, the insulation wasn't in the roof, the ceilings went up and we had four little kids, uh, th- at that stage three little kids. Um, so we all just kind of huddled around the heater and <laughs> made the best of it until Monday when they could get the fire actually working. And what did you do? initially for power, water, and sewage? So the house is on a sewage tank and it's rainwater. And thankfully we moved in in May, which traditionally in Dunedin is the heaviest rainfall. So our tanks were almost full when we moved in, um, which is nice. Um, And electricity, our house is hooked to the grid, but we've since installed enough solar panels that we could pull the plug. And if we were staying here, we would. Um, But our house is currently on the market, so we didn't want to pull the plug and then have someone else come in and decide they wanted to stay hooked up. So it's currently doing both. Okay. When you say your house is on the market. Yeah. The house you're living in now is on the market. We're yep. going to have to slowly work through this. So <laughs> um, you got teen acres. Yeah. you got a gold pine shed up spec. you got uh, the digger driver and the builder built it and you finished it off. Yep. And you got on the grid, you're using rainwater and you've got a sewage system that is sort of dug into the ground. Mm-hmm. Is it rude to ask what all that cost? Um, I think the 
surge system and stuff was about 20 grand, I think. But again, yeah. that was like eight years ago. So I think yeah. it's more than that now. Of course. Um, we put two big concrete tanks in. So I think that was like 16,000 for the tanks. For the water? Can, yeah, for the, for the water. You yeah. can get the, the plastic ones are often cheaper, but I don't like the taste of the water that comes out of them. Oh, I've really? Grown up, yeah, different. I've grown up uh. on concrete tanks and I don't like the taste of the water out of the plastic ones. Mm. Yeah. And so the rainwater runs off your roof? Yeah. Do you have to do anything to the water? Oh, we have a filter, like, before you drink it. but So it takes the possums and the leaves out? Yeah. <laughs> I think if a possum manages to fall down a drain pipe, it's a pretty small possum. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I just sort of think. I'm, so you can safely, I know this sounds silly, right, but you can safely drink water that's fallen out of the sky, I suppose it's all fallen out of the sky, run down your roof, yeah, down your drain pipe and through a filter into your concrete tank. Well, it goes into the concrete. The filter's on the way out. Ah. Yeah. So the nice thing about particularly concrete tanks, but all water tanks, they develop a natural biofilm in them, which has the good bacteria in it that will naturally generally fight the bad ones. So the chances of getting something like Giardia is actually really slim. Do you have to put that biofilm in or is it just a kit? Really? It just develops, yeah. yeah. See, there's so these things that I imagine for hundreds and thousands of years we've sort of known and it's sort of such a shock to me because we aren't even prepared to drink water unless it comes out of a tap or a bottle yeah. now, aren't we? And you yes. just get it off Tragic. your roof. Yeah. And can you get enough water that way? Yeah, we've never run out. So does it only come off your roof? Yep. Yeah. My goodness. Yeah. Ah, and you got electricity and you got a sewage system. Okay. So what did the shed cost? Uh oh, that's a good question. I think all up our build here was about at the time, about 220. Good for you. Um, because we saved a lot in labor because we did the lining ourselves and the insulation ourselves. And labor is about half the cost of a build. So is your husband quite handy? No. <laughs> Was it a bit like that? You won't remember this, but when I was a kid, they had a great show called Green Acres. Yeah. With, what was it Zaza Gabor or some, some woman? And they went from, I guess, New York out into the country. And it was sort of the, the show was around their spoofs of them living in the countryside. It was terribly lame, but at the time we loved it. Did it feel a bit like that, that you were hapless, the two of you? Oh, we just, um, I'm quite practically minded and, um, Matthew's very good at following instructions. So um, he can wield a skill saw better than I can because he's got the strength that I don't have. Um, so I can say, here, cut this, and he'll cut it straight, you know. Mm. And, yeah, he's developed a lot of skills over the last, how long are we married? Nearly 18 years. He's, he's learned a lot. <laughs> <laughs> like all good husbands, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, the key to a successful marriage is to learn to do what you're told. Yeah. Tell me. Um, it would be fun, though, wouldn't it, building that house? It's quite an adventure, definitely, yeah, um, and the and kids loved it. How old were your kids when you were building? Uh, my eldest is 14 now, so she must have been about six or seven when we started. Mm. Um, and, 
Yeah. And my youngest at the, when we moved out here, uh, he was the youngest at the time. He was like one and a half, maybe 15 months. So we've got photos of him. He, he was a bit of a slow talker, which was a bit of a shock having had two girls that were very early and quick talkers. But he was like so nimble. He would be up the top of a ladder doing something. <laughs> he just Quite had the scary, balance. isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, my wife and I renovated a house when we had a young child. Our oldest one was young. And the terrible thing was we'd get busy working and, like, almost forget about her. Mm -hmm. And a couple of times, I remember one particular time, we went into the living room where we had left her playing and thought, I oh, will just keep an eye on her. And we sort of forgot because you get working. Yep. And I can only think of one thing at a time at best. And we went out and we couldn't find her. And we were so terrified. You know, that terrible panic uh -huh. as a parent when you can't see your kid. And like we were running around outside and we we're about to run down the street. And it turned out she'd just fallen into the toy box and couldn't get <laughs> out. And she was perfectly safe in this way. This toy box was constructed, but like she couldn't get out. And it was such a shock because, um, yeah, and it's, and it's tough, isn't it? Because yeah. um we had the same thing with my eldest when she was maybe two, she she would just suck her thumb and fall asleep anywhere. And we were working outside building this chicken house um for these first lot of chickens we were getting. And she said, I'm gonna go inside. And we're like, okay. And um when I was like, Oh, I better go check on Tally. I couldn't find her anywhere. And our oh. German student at the time had come home, but hadn't shut the front door properly. So it was open. I'm like, I'm sure she wouldn't have gone up to the, oh. we were worried she'd gone up to the dairy or something. Oh. Um, and so I eventually thought, oh, here, I'll go up to the street and see. And then eventually Matthew Hollis for me, I found her. She was asleep. She'd snuggled in under the giant pile of washing oh, and gosh. fallen asleep. So there's just this little face sucking her thumb that you could see poking out from this big pile of washing. Oh gosh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, so um, I know that so, <laughs> Yeah, we all do. Even in the shopping mall, you can lose them. Um, yeah. And so you built this shed, and then you started to populate the 10 acres with stuff. Yep. What did you do? Uh, I We brought the chickens with us when we moved here. So they were here while we were still finishing the house and stuff. Um, we just put together a little house with them using some scrap tin that Matthew had found from a friend's house and some pallets and sort of stacked the pallets too high and made this big shed with it. And so that's where the chickens hung out until we had time to build them a proper chicken house. And not long after we got here, we got some milking goats um, as well. Um, and we had to keep them on a tether until we could get some fencing in. Why did you get milking goats? Uh, why did we get them then? One, it was before I had Jada. I can't remember why we got them there. I think pro probably just because I love goats. I've grown up with them. And and and, them. and you milk a goat? Yeah. Do you milk it each day? Yeah, yeah. They usually will have a baby with them. And so we do what's called sheer milking with them. So the, we will pop the babies into a pen next to the mother or usually we have a couple of mums on the go at the time so all the babies go in together put them in a pen overnight milk the mums in the morning and then leave the babies with them for the day so you sort of pinch babies milk yeah 
<laughs> but it, it's great because it means that, I mean, the babies don't drink much during the evening anyway. Um, and then how much milk do you get out of a goat? Uh, it depends how good a milker they are. My my favourite one that we had, Edith, she would milk a litre. Wow. Yeah, some of them milk more than that. but she, And what's it taste like? Um, I'm honestly not the biggest fan of drinking it. I can taste the, I don't even know what you call it, a kind of a, it's not even goatee. There's a taste in the back of your throat. My eldest can taste it as well, but no one else in the family can, so they'll all drink it. Um, it, it just tastes like milk. Except for me and Talia, we can feel have this funny aftertaste, yeah. And you grew up with milking goats? Yeah. And yeah. so is that your sole supply of milk? Uh, no. The, we then sort of moved out of milking goats and swapped to meat goats when I discovered that the people in the family that are good at, like, okay at drinking dairy and don't get too much upset tummy from having too much dairy are the ones that don't particularly love the goat's milk and the ones that have some dairy intolerance were the ones that were drinking the goat's milk. So we don't actually use all that much milk in our house anymore. But when we do eventually move, I want to get an A2, A2 Jersey cow. Mm -hmm. Um, There's different types of casein protein in milk and goats and A2, A2 cows have the same sort of casein, and but most dairy, particularly in New Zealand, most commercial dairy is A1. Um, so a lot of people that react to commercial dairy are okay with goat's milk or A2, A2 jersey. So, Do you think pasteurisation makes a difference to your tolerance or intolerance of the milk? I think there's, um, there's like a scale of pasteurisation. So there's a local place, well, not, not very local to here, it's north of Dunedin, um, but they used to sell raw milk and then they found some TB in their herd. So now they do like a low temperature, longer mm. time pasteurization um, and it's not homogenized. And I don't know if it's pasteurizing it or homogenizing it. I suspect it's the homogenizing that does the product because mm. it breaks all the particles up really small. Yeah. So they mix in together. And well, I I, when you get I'm leaky a, gut things. I was a big fan of raw milk. I can't get any at the moment, not at a reasonable price anyway. And our kids grew up on raw milk. And um, I remember getting this milk and sitting down, and I hadn't drunk milk since I was a kid. And I poured myself a glass of milk, and I started sipping it. And it transported me back to being a little kid and drinking milk from the cow. And it was so delicious and refreshing. And after that glass of milk, I slept literally like a baby and became a big fan of it. Amazingly, the couple that used to supply us with raw raw milk and a lot of Wellington, the government hounded them and hounded them. And they kept within all the rules and regulations and would get legal advice and all the rest of it. And they got prosecuted for not following some regulation. And their milk was so, our kids grew up on it. Yeah. Um, So I'm interested, I was interested in that. I I never looked all that. Well, I did. I read a couple of books on it and I was fascinated by it. But um, now we're just having to buy, you know, standard milk and Mm. we make kefir. And the kids mostly drink kefir, but um, good for you. So I'd never heard about having milk, milking goats, and fighting the little kid for your share. (laughs) Um, But you've always got to have a little kid. Being well, you can you can milk them for a couple of years before they have to have another kid. Yeah, but um, 
that sort of the milk supply does taper off and the kids are so cute. Why would you not want them? <laughs> yeah, but you sort of got to get a daddy goat, don't you? Yeah, yeah. And we then... used to borrow um, one from someone else that we knew and he was real sweet. He was a lovely daddy goat. He wasn't aggressive. Um, and then more recently with our last herd, um, we had one and as long as he wasn't, as long as it wasn't in season, um, he was lovely. When it was sort of rushing season, he was a bit more protective of his girls and we just stayed out of the paddock when he was like that. Um, but the rest of the time he'd come up for a cuddle, he was quite lovely. Gosh, that's really out there to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sort of up till recently, you know, it's got to be wrapped in a bit of plastic for me mm-hmm. to contemplate eating it um, or drinking it. But um, she got the uh, what, what did you do in the garden? Well, it took us a wee while to get the garden done because we needed the digger driver to come back. When he's cleared up for the house, he put this massive pile of topsoil just over off to the side. And so for where my veggie garden was going, I needed him to come back. So we had to finish sort of what we were doing with the house before we could get him back. And so he came back and placed it out for the lawn and pushed it out for the veggie garden. So I did have to go, I think it was about a year and a half without a garden, which mm. by the end of that, I was like, I need a garden. <laughs> mm. Not but for your sanity almost. Yeah. yeah. It gives me an excuse to get outside and I can, the kids don't, one of my kids loves gardening. The others will come and help and then get bored and walk off. Um, so it's a nice way of not telling them to go away, but also getting my own space. Yeah. Yeah. So you, how did you make your garden? Uh, to start with, though, just in the ground, like just I. No, but like you put the topsoil down. That was it. Yeah, pretty much. And then we had some animal bedding, so we because cleaning out from the goats and the chickens, so we dumped some of that on the ground. Um, and then I just kind of made sort of furrows for the pathways and hills for the garden, just so I knew not to stand on the garden bed so much. Um, and how did you know when to plant things? By that stage. I kind of have a rough feel for it. But yeah. my favourite book was actually the Star Garden Guide. So, you know, um, like there's the ODT and Allied Press who own ODT, um, the newspaper. They, there's also the Star. And so the Star, which is like the wee weekly tabloid, I guess it's called, the wee yes. one that gets put out for free. Yeah, so the Star, they had a Star Garden Guide and it was a book. Um, because it was made locally, because a lot of the gardening books you get for New Zealand, like the Tui one, seems to be more based for sort of Wellington up, um, yeah. not quite so relevant for us down here that get a bit colder. Um, and so it was great because it had weekly what to plant each week. Um, oh, I've got to get that book because I'm into gardening, slowly learning. But yeah. um, uh, I, it's crazy, right, because like, I'm like you, my mum and dad were the best gardeners ever and I never learnt and could never understand it. And now I'm, um, I just want to garden. Yeah. Well, I, I put I put together a gardening course for people like that and then I decided to put all that course material into a book. So it's um, it's got weekly what activities. Oh, on your webpage. Garden. Okay. Hey? On your yeah. webpage. Yeah. Oh, look at that. Yeah. Because I got distracted reading about hens on your webpage. So I'm going to keep hens. I'm scared of hens. Oh. I'm going to come back to um, your webpage. But so you got your garden up and running, you got your house, and you started. At what point did you start homeschooling your kids? 
We actually started that before we moved out here. It was one of the things that stopped us having to worry too much about where in town the section was. Okay. Um, my eldest went to school for about, well, she went for a year, but about two weeks into it, she's like, when are we going back to kindy? And then halfway through that first year, she's like, school's such a waste of time. The teacher spends the whole time telling off the naughty kids and I don't get to do anything that I want to do. Isn't that great? Out of the mouth of a five-year-old. <laughs> and and they like, love being oh. homeschooled? Hey. They love being homeschooled? Oh, they love it. They live the best life. I thought, well, I did all right at school. Like academically, I did all right, but I would have vastly preferred to have been at home. Um, and my husband had a bit of a rough go through school. So um, we thought, you know what? We'll give it a try. We'll give it a bash for a year. By that stage, I was pregnant with the third one. And thought, if we're going to give it a try, now's the time. And haven't looked back. <laughs> we just love and, it. And tell me why it's called Fantail Valley or the Maori word. Oh, Piwakaka Valley. When we first moved here, uh, well, no, when we first came to visit here, it was March-ish. And as it turns out, that's when there seems to just be a lot of fantails around. But when we got here, there were just fantails everywhere. And they, when we went to look at the section and to have a look around, they'd just be in the trees right next to you. Wow. Um, so the kids actually came up with the name. My oldest two are bird crazy. Um, absolutely. They just love them. So so um, the valley itself is not called Fantail Valley. Your place is called that. Yeah, because we've got sort of a gully that runs down one side of it. Okay. And so um, it sounds idyllic, right? Yeah. <laughs> sounds it. <laughs> Tell me about the worst moment. Um, when you're going to kill your husband or something. I think one of the worst moments most recently was we were working over at the new place. Um, we're trying to get a barn built over there so we can go and camp in it while we build a house. So we were over there busting about guts trying to get some stuff done over there and I get a text message from a guy who lives up the road saying we were just at our other neighbours looking after it while they're away and these goats are in the paddock. Are they yours? Oh. And all of our goats had jumped the fence, which the seven years they've never jumped the fence and they were all in the neighbours' paddock. And um, did they do naughty things in the paddock? Like no, thankfully, but also they refused to come home. So it took two and a half hours to get them back across the fence. Do you herd them or catch them? I had to catch every single one of them and lift them over. Most of them are pretty friendly, but a couple of them are like, they're friendly as long as they're a metre away from you. Um, and then if they're closer, they run away. So um, it took a bit of, bit of um, effort to get them home again. The kids would have loved that, right? Well, Actually, I didn't go down. Matthew went and my eldest and my third went and did it. Okay. And they managed very well. It was my job to fix all the electric, all the electric fence. So they didn't do it again. <laughs> mm. So now that you've got all set up, you're getting reset up all again. Tell me about yes. that. Why are you getting reset up? Um, because these days we've only got one income. And so we've decided that we want to try and sell this house. And start again and do it all slowly with cash and not have a mortgage is the plan. Good for you. So is it the same bit of land or another bit of land? It's another bit. We can actually see it. I can see it from here looking across the valley. It's an ex-forestry block. Okay. How many acres is that? 43. Wow. And yeah. you're going to sell your 10-acre block with your gold pine specked up to a house shed mm -hmm. on it and garden. Yeah. And you've got 43 acres. 
ex-forestry what's their pasture or nothing nothing when we bought we bought it almost a year ago um and it's clay it's had the big machines over it so it's all churned up quite rough um so we got the same guy that did the digger work here took a bulldozer over there just to clear off some spots move some of the slash out the way um and clear off a place for us to put the barn and we've put a big turnaround around it so it's been really helpful getting trucks over there to have a big truck turnaround um leveled off an area for a veggie garden and a big tunnel house and so they're all over there already i've got a tunnel house have you they're great (laughs) i've had it for three weeks oh that's awesome maybe longer uh i have you got to listen to my show with wally richards the gardening guru yeah. And he said, oh, you get a glass house or a tunnel house. And I said, oh, how do I get that? He said, you just keep your eye out. And he mm-hmm. says, one will come up for, for free just to get rid of it. And I thought that's impossible. And so I looked. He told me to go on Nabley. I went on Nabley. Nothing appeared. I couldn't understand it. Now Nabley won't stop emailing me. I'm getting sick of him. <laughs> and, uh, but I went on Facebook and blow me down. There was a tunnel house. A uh, guy said, you just meant to listen. You can have it over in Hawea near Wanaka. So it's like an hour away. Yeah. So I went over there and exhausted myself taking down this tunnel house. And then I thought, oh, I'm not sure I can get this back up because like a typical man, I just took it down. And then when <laughs> I took it down, I couldn't remember which bits went <laughs> plastic everywhere. Anyway, like a typical man, my wife came and helped me put it up and she had a bit of water to it. And so I've got a tunnel house. and um. I've planted things, but nothing's yet sprouted. But it's very warm in there. It's like five degrees warmer. And yeah. I put I put a lot of compost in it to warm it up more. Uh-huh. I don't know if that's going to work, but the, the yeah. soil is very warm and I got it. And so that's quite exciting. I just wanted to brag. That's very exciting. It's yeah, very I'm exciting. so excited. I just miss my tunnel house because it's yeah. down the road. So you've got this other 43 acres and you're going to build a barn. Live in, you're building the barn. You're going to live in the barn. And you're going to build a house. That's the plan. Good for you. Now, tell me then, you're doing all this. You're homeschooling four kids. You're looking after a husband, which, you know, is a big job. <laughs> and you decide to set up a web page. Tell me yeah. about that bit. Well, when we first started building here, that's how it very first started. My cousin lives down in Invercargill and she was like, keep us updated with your house build. So that's how it started. It was literally just a blog of the house build and progress here. Um, and then I sort of fell down the tunnel of SEO and using advertising and making What's your own. SEO? Uh, search engine optimization. So basically writing stuff so Google will find it so that when people search for ah. stuff, it'll come up. And so then learning realized, the alg- algorithms in that. Yeah. And then I realized that actually I could not. So only if you write Pornhub or something, people will yeah. find you quicker. <laughs> yeah, that. <laughs> or Bikino Girl. Bikini, book lots of girls in bikini. Or Exactly. Exactly. Don't you hate it when you're reading a news site and you read a headline or something pops up and it's so exciting and then you click on it and it's so bloody dreary. The only thing that was exciting was the headline. Was the title. That clickbait's a real, yeah, you've got to stay away from that. Otherwise, the good thing about Google is it works out how long someone stays on a page for. So if you click Uh, onto it, read the first paragraph and go, that's irrelevant, click off, they're less likely to recommend that article to someone else. 
So you learned how to do a blog and have a web page mm-hmm. that uh, would go high up a Google search. Mm-hmm. And then you start to think, well, this is interesting because people are interested in what I'm doing. Yeah. So I'll do more. Yeah. So I swapped from just documenting our progress to actually writing more how-to stuff to teach other people how they can do it as well. Did um, you have any background in teaching or writing or no, blogging or web things? No. You've done um, all this just by learning. Yeah. Yeah. And now I've built a few websites for a few businesses too that need a simple website i can i i personally own about three or four that i yeah so um, you built the web page you didn't go to some fancy computer guy and say i need a web page you built it no i did it myself because it's cheaper that way <laughs> wow because i suppose if you're having goats and milking your goats and filing off the kids and getting a dad goat and all the rest of it building a web page is like easy Well, I mean, Matthew, my husband, had built a few things using different processes in the past. So he helped me work out how to, I won't get into the technical details, but basically get the address that you've got to point to the website that you're actually building. So he helped me with that bit. But the rest of it, I use WordPress. Um, Again, uh, I won't get into that either. There's two different But you can do it. You can do it. Yeah. Do a lot of people go to it? Yeah. Yeah. these days, I probably get mm, forty or fifty thousand page views a month. That's huge, right? Yeah, well, it's it's not nothing. Yeah. <laughs> um, because I started reading it, mm-hmm. and I was loving it. Oh, that's good. And like I normally that person that reads something on the web for two minutes and thinking, oh, what's next? Yeah. And I spend a, 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 an hour going, what's next? You know. But I got to your web page. And I land, I I sort of want to have eggs, but I don't like hens. <laughs> so what would be your advice to me? Uh, I think the answer Excuse in that. Me. Do you have to touch them? No, well, that's the thing. My sister is one of my sisters. I'm the eldest of four girls. One of my sisters is terrified of birds and she has chickens. She just has their house set up in a way that um, she doesn't have to go in it very often. <laughs> Um, and she don't got, mind. I don't mind the chicken poop. I go yeah. into the dirty old hen house. Yeah. I just don't want to be near a chicken. Yeah. So the trick hen. is make your nest, the area they sleep in, up off the ground and have some perches that are open underneath because they do half their pooping at nighttime. So if you make it so that their poop falls through, but also make it that you can shut that from, so when they all go to bed at nighttime, you can shut that door so they're all locked in there. So you can get into their run and clean it out without the chickens coming out. And then you can get roll away nesting boxes so the eggs will roll out of the nest and into a weed capture space. So you can open those and get them out without touching the chickens as well. There's options. And what do you do, God forbid, if one got old and passed away? Oh, well, it happens. You just I mean, get a fork and get yeah. a long fork and stick them on up. a shovel yeah and then bury them put them in your garden because i don't know i feel a bit embarrassed mentioning this but i they look at me and i just they seem to shiver down my spine that's because they're dinosaurs yeah that's it they're dinosaurs because yeah. yeah. i just i might be i might have a condition that i could start putting in my 
sort of signature with my pronouns that I'm a victim because, you know, I have this terrible thing that I'm scared of chickens. Got trauma. <laughs> yeah. And um, I lo- I mean, we go through, the eggs are so irritating to me because, like, we go through heaps and heaps and heaps of eggs. Mm-hmm. And if you get used to paying for something at $4, you think, okay, well, that's the price. And then they say it's now $10. And you're thinking, what? Jeez. And I mean, I wouldn't lay an egg for a dollar. So I think it's not that bad. So, you know, $10. But then they say you can only have a carton. And you say, what? We go through a carton of eggs a day. Yeah. I mean, i got to come back tomorrow for my another carton. And I go back to my other carton and pack and save. oh, we're sold out of eggs. You have to come back tomorrow. Yeah. And all this is course of crazy rules on uh, yep. resource management act and all that nonsense that's um yep. done this to our poor hen farmers and so i'm thinking well i'm gardening i've got myself a tunnel house maybe i need a chicken coop yeah. but would i have to touch the hens or no. care for them or if they get sick or something and then that's why i started reading it and um your page i'm going to read it some more and figure out how i do all this because, I think it's um, quite doable. And I don't want to spend any money on a chicken coop. And I, I'm quite handy because yeah. it seems to me if I spent money on a chicken coop, I'm defeating my purpose. Mm-hmm. But I've got a lot of old pallets. Yeah. Well, Queenstown's yeah. great for old pallets because it seems everything gets delivered in and the pallets don't get taken away. Yeah. So there's a zillion and one pallets. And, That's great. Um, oh, well. So what do you cook for food in your gold pine upspec barn, which looks so lovely here? Uh, We eat fairly simple. I mean, feeding little kids, trying to give them food that they'll eat as well as it being not too expensive, you know how it is. Um, But most meals at the moment, I can proudly say, most of our dinners are completely homegrown except for the beef which we're getting from my brother-in-law's farm um we don't have beef here but if we've got lamb or um yeah it's usually from here um and all the veggies are from here well see i hear this and i'm just full of awe because it's just sort of i can't imagine well i mean obviously we could do that once Hmm. um and tell me with your tunnel house, will you grow veggies year-round? Yes. Um, we're here we've got a nine-metre by two-and-a-half-metre one, and I would usually fill it up with brassicas, like cabbage, broccoli, cauliflower, that sort of thing for the winter. Our new tunnel house is about 100 square metres, so I've got it chocker full of stuff <laughs> um, wow. for the winter. Wow. Yeah. And tell me about your solar power. Um, so we were getting quite a few power cuts out here and my second daughter is the opposite to you. She's chicken crazy. And so she often has hens, uh, eggs in the incubator, or she's got a heat lamp over chicks, or she raises quite a few of them. And, um, and we kept getting these power cuts and then we'd lose the eggs or we'd lose the chickens, um, because the power was going out. Yeah. Yeah, and when my husband left his job at ACC to go and do something else, he got all his super paid out. And so we're like, we're going to put that into getting some solar panels so that we can um, 
not have to worry about the power cuts anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, so we did that. Do you have a battery? We've got two batteries, yep. And how long do they, how much power do they store for you? Uh, I can't remember how big they are. Well, ask Mark to me this. You say you could manage with the solar power. Mm-hmm. Do you ever run out and say, oh, do you have to be careful? Uh, well, we are still hooked to the grid, so we can still pull from it. But, for example, our last power bill was $99, and nine of that was electricity that we'd used. The rest of it was all just line user charges. My goodness. Yeah. So you will be wanting to disconnect because that's terrible. You're just paying $90 a uh, what is that? How long for that bill? Uh, 28 days, I think now. $90 just for the convenience of a backup. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. And um, when you cook, you use electricity? Yep. Yeah, we've got just a standard old-fashioned white stove, you know, those ones that... Have you thought about getting a wood-fired stove? Oh, we've got one of those as well. Um, it's my favourite thing in the house. Um when we've got the fire going, it heats our hot water, it runs radiators, and I cook on it and I bake in the oven. So when we moved here in May, all those years ago, I didn't actually turn on the electric stove until October. Wow. And yeah. so is this a expensive wood stove that you it's, bought? It's a New Zealand one. It's a Wagner. Oh, um, yes, so, I read about them. Yeah, so they're significantly cheaper than some of the others. I think from memory this one was like 6,000, I think. Yeah. As opposed to some of them that are like 16 to 20. Yeah. Yeah. So you got a Wagner stove and it's got a wet back. It runs pipes through your houses to ra- to your house, got radiators, mm-hmm. right? You light the fire. It heats the house with these radiators, which is a lovely heat, right? Yeah. And then it heats your water for your shower and bath. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it cooks. And do you keep right. it running all day? Uh, only when it's cold. Usually we'll start it up. At this time of year, we usually start it up about 4 o'clock, unless it's been cold during the day. But like today, it's a beautiful sunny day, so we'll probably put it on around 4 o'clock-ish, and then it's warm enough to cook on. So you put it on at 4 o'clock, and it does all of that, all your hot water, heats your house, mm-hmm. and you cook on it. Does yep. it take a lot of fuel? Uh, it depends what you're burning. Uh, at the moment, we're using the crappy pine from the cleared forestry at the new place. Um, so it burns fairly quickly. You know those big flexi tubs that you can get? The, the sort yeah. Of, yeah, those flexi tubs. If we're burning the fire all day and the evening, we might go through four of those if it's pine. Um, if it's macrocarpa or gum, we'll probably go through two, two and a half. Mm. And if we're burning gorse, once you get the fire going, you'd only go through one of them. Wow, because it's yeah. a hard wood. Yeah. And um, you can get all that firewood just for the cost mostly of collecting where you are, yeah. right? Yeah, we pretty much get it for free, yeah. and But you don't like cooking on it in summer because it's too hot? Yeah, well, um, because we have so much solar, we use the solar to just heat the hot water, just Got using it. the electricity from the solar to heat the hot water, and we don't need the house heated. It's our only source of heat, but during the summer, it's obviously not an issue. So we have enough solar that we've got enough electricity to just cook whatever, and we sell the excess back to the grid. Goodness me. 
Yeah. Um, Because I remember going when I was a kid and my nana would have, you know, nothing else but a wood-fired stove. And she baked all the bread. And I can remember going there on a hot Norwest Canterbury day. And the (laughs) kitchen was about 10 (laughs) zillion degrees. And and your poor nana's there all dressed up with stockings on. I can remember her having stockings on. I don't know why. Well, because you have to. Yeah, and sweating like a sweating like a boxer or something, you know. Yeah, and just baking bread. Oh, that's very clever. I hadn't thought that that if you had solar in the summer, you could get away with just using the wood fire because there must be something very comforting on a cold night having a fire going and heating mm. your water, cooking on it, and heating your house. Yeah, that's lovely. There's nothing like wood heat. It's nothing like it. No. Yeah. So do you have to have a large wood box because you're going through four tubs a day? Or do um, you just sort of top it up each week? We no, we very cleverly just put the um the woodshed's not far from the front door. So we just yeah. And you've got kids, right? It's their job. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> oh well, everyone, look up a Wagner. Yeah. And look up uh, Fantail Valley. Now, all you are an inspiration and okay. I'm in awe of you. Uh-huh. I suppose you don't spend much time apart being on your, uh, doing your own upload. You don't sit there uselessly following Twitter or anything, would you? Oh, not Twitter, no. Because no. you've got like such an exciting life just around the house. Uh, yeah, but I... I've never really got into Twitter. I do watch a bit of YouTube and I listen to a lot of podcasts, particularly when I'm gardening. Mm. Um, Do you, how do you find out how to do things like catch goats or grow something? Do you Google it and look at it on YouTube? How do you, have you mostly found out how to do the next thing? Um, yeah, if I don't know often, it's YouTube these days. Previously, it would be Google, but unfortunately, so many websites these days are written either by non-English speaking people mm-hmm. or written by AI. The amount of times that you Google something and it comes up, you start reading it like this is nonsense. Like this does not make sense. Oh, really? Um, yeah, it does does my head in. So I've swapped to looking for YouTube videos on stuff. Oh, I thought it was me. No. Getting old. It's no. Oh. If you find a, blo- a a website article that says "furthermore" in multiple places, it's been written by AI. Huh? Yeah, that seems to be their favorite word is "furthermore," and they just put it in everything. It's like me when I'm on the radio. I say I notice I say a lot of buts, but, yeah. and that's my sort of why well, am I thinking? Um, yeah. And tell me about homeschooling the kids how do you manage that what's your makeup of your day do you have a pattern or do you just take it as it comes uh we're really involved in one of the homeschooling groups whoops just kicked the table one of the homeschooling groups in Dunedin so we go to activities three days a week in there and there are more that we could be doing we've just had to designate some home days um and we don't do a great deal of book work these days. The kids are mostly sort of self-motivated with their learning. So my eldest is 14 and she has taught herself in this last 12 months or so, she's taught herself trapping possums, tanning hides um, and taxidermy. 
and she's currently outside weaving a flex, uh, what is it, willow, a willow basket. So she just teaches herself. She's taught herself crochet. She's just away laughing, doing those sorts of things. And she wants to run workshops um, teaching wild craft to other kids. That's what she'd oh, like goodness. to do. Yeah, yeah. and, and eventually she, to grown-ups. But she can read and write and do some. Oh, yeah, yeah. They picked that up along the way. Yeah, and then my next daughter, Dan, she's 12, and she's out washing chickens at the moment because they've got the poultry clubs, got their big chicken show this weekend, so she's showing some chickens in there. And she knows more about genetics and breeding than I could ever dream of knowing. She just reads big, thick books on genetics that I just doesn't interest me, but she loves it. Because she's breeding chickens. Yeah, and she knows all the big medical terms for the different types of genes i i don't even know i'm not even going to give them a try but she how old is she 12 goodness me yeah and my eight-year-old he's just learning to read he's too busy doing other stuff to want to sit down and read but he's just got to the point now where he'll read signs off his own volition so um he's getting there um and he loves building and digging and those sorts of things it's he wants to be either a digger driver or a mechanic. So mm. like, it's interesting, isn't it? Because yeah. I've noticed with kids, uh, they learn, they get switched on to things at different ages. Mm-hmm. And when they're switched on, man, you can teach them so quickly. Like they mm-hmm. decide they're into something. You can't hold them back. No. And then if they're not into it, it's hard work. And you realize yeah. that school is running them along all at the same pace. Mm-hmm. And um, when you, I homeschooled my kids for two terms. And when they were into, say, oh, I'm really into this mathematics or learning um, uh, fractions, mm-hmm. uh, man, it's just like so much happens in such a mm-hmm. short while. Yeah. And I've learned to sort of grab those moments mm-hmm. and they can get such a lot. And then you realize that school's a bit tedious because they're having to work with a class and not at a pace. Whereas with homeschooling, yeah. you can capture those moments. Yeah, definitely. Ah, wow. My youngest, he's three and a half. Oh, he'll be four soon. Um, and he's already asking about letters and sounds and like he knows all his letters and he knows his numbers and he can count in twos to like 20 already, which is ridiculous. I don't think they learn that at school until they're five. No. Um, but he's already sounding, trying to sound out words. Yeah. And he's three. So yeah, well, in contrast to my eight-year-old, <laughs> yeah. insane. No, well, we've had that. Like my oldest girl could read and just couldn't, can't keep her out of a book. Mm-hmm. And my next one, who's only 18 months younger, she's only just starting to read and it's yeah. like for a long time I thought god I'm letting her down but she just wasn't into it and now she's into it she's again getting away reading yeah um oh how how very wonderful uh I'm talking with Dana Thompson with a p correct yes <laughs> she's got this beautiful web page called Fantail Valley it's well worth a dig around and you'll get attracted to it. Funny enough, when I was reading it, for some reason, it, I thought it was in the Marlborough Sounds, but it's just across the way in Dunedin. Yeah. Go there and have a look if you're interested. I'd quite like to check in with you, Dana, if you'd let me, and to see yeah. how you're going. And you can start teaching us about specific things. Definitely. So we could do a session on chooks, 
yes or things like that do you bake bread I do bake bread yep ah you you really are the earth mother (laughs) if when when catastrophe hits I'm going to head to your place well I think you'll find a lot of people will be there (laughs) someone told me who was into this looking after yourself uh, when you know bad stuff happens, yeah, he told me that the most important thing that you needed was a bow and arrow or a gun because you had to be prepared to fight off all those people that were wanting water and food and chickens and stuff like that. So yeah. you might have that problem, right? And if it became down to Mad Max, everyone would be filing down to your place to have your kids feed them and look after them. <laughs> I don't know. My eldest might bring out her crossbow. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's how it happened. And you're a nurse by training? I am. I don't nurse anymore. Um, When the whole COVID thing hit and I was still on maternity leave, I was due to go back after having my youngest. And I said to Matthew, I don't want to go work in this nonsense. And I'm so glad that I didn't. Um, Are you one of the unjabbed? I am one of those dirty, filthy Me too. Yeah. <laughs> and so I just thought, you know what, we, we'll just be poor. We'll just make ends meet and just deal with it. Um, well, the funny thing about being poor is, is it, it, and being resilient is you haven't got a lot to lose in a funny way. I mean, I imagine if you're very well off at the moment and got high expenses, you could be a bit troubled because, mm-hmm. you know, you could be sitting on the edge, whereas you and your husband, you could go down to nothing and you could live. Yeah, pretty much. Which is um, most people could be living and they can't imagine going down a little bit because mm-hmm. of the bills that they've got and the commitments they've got to their kids' education and their kids' sport and all the rest of it. Yeah, so definitely. you do... Um, you do think if you've got that covered, um, you can actually hunker down um, and go through a rough time. There's sort of two ways to do it. You either have to be very rich or very poor somehow to to yeah. cope. I think um, not having money makes you a lot more creative with what you have, and it makes you learn stuff that maybe you wouldn't normally want to learn. Mm. Like, when, like getting over my fear of chooks. Yeah, exactly. I'm going to do that now. I'm going to get animals. To- you should. You totally should. I'm going to get it because it's just a thing in my head, right? Yeah, it is. You can totally. I had a thing in my head that I couldn't eat fish for a long time. <laughs> Still can't really. The smell of fish. I got fish poisoning oh, when I yeah. was seven. Yeah. And the smell of fish, you know, that strong fish mm-hmm. smell will send me to the bathroom. Yeah, I don't like fish. And um, I decided it was just a thing in my head. And I went to a Japanese restaurant and ate a full plate of raw fish. Oh, wow. And after that, I thought, oh, yeah, that's nothing. And I still don't particularly like fish, but I know I can eat it. And I think I'm going to have to overcome my my fear of chooks. You should. Because um, I've got a bit of a thing, like plants are clean. You know, I can grow a lettuce and I can cut it and take it home and make a salad. Yeah. And I feel very good about that. But I feel quite differently about having a dirty old sheep running around the paddock and then chopping it up and eating it. But I love meat. You know what I mean? So there's this, there's these little things that we have grown remote from the sharp end of what we eat. 
That's so true. And, and I've grown remote from the sharp end of eggs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so no. I'm going to have to get back. Dana, good luck with your kids. Do come on. I recommend, I'm talking to Dana Thompson. You're on Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. We've been talking the real thing about homesteading. I recommend everyone that's listening, if they're wanting to spend some good quality time, go to Fantail Valley, Google it, because the algorithms will send you there. <laughs> so this lady who's living out in the wop wops, sort of with a bit of straw coming out of her ears, <laughs> knows how to beat the Google algorithms and get into the cyberspace. And you'll find her. And you'll learn a lot. And you'll learn a little bit about the family, which is just so gorgeous. And they will inspire you. And just like I've been inspired first by Wally to get a tunnel house, now by Dana to get chooks. And we'll check back in with you, Dana, if we may. Yes. Good luck to you great. and your husband. When do you think you'll move into the new house, new barn? Uh, if we don't sell the house first, we are thinking about maybe August. But try and get the worst of the winter out of the way here. But um, if we sell the house first, the barn's nearly ready to go. So, And you've got a Wagner in it? Uh, not yet, but we'll put something in it. And that yeah. cool. Would it be a Wagner or something else? Um, because we're not planning on staying there long term, it'll probably just be a wee wood fire. And then I, see. I definitely want a Wagner in the house, though, when we build okay. it. Okay, wait till you build the barn. Lovely talking. Uh, that was Dana Thompson from Fantalic Valley. She's got 10 acres, soon to be 43 acres. She's got four children. She's educated. She's got a husband who'll do what he's told, so much so that she can point to a piece of wood and say, cut that there, honey, and he will cut it there, honey, with no questions asked. Not only that, her and her two oldest cats, on her command, will jump the fence and round up the goats. I didn't find out how many goats, but it seemed a lot because it took them two and a half hours to get them back over the fence. And thankfully, they didn't eat the neighbor's washing or the clean up the neighbor's veggie garden, which I imagine goats could do. What a delightful woman. What a delightful story. What a delightful life. And how wonderfully resilient are her children going to be compared to the whiny things that we seem to be producing in the classroom? these days you're on reality check radio it's real talk with rodney hyde thank you for listening this is real talk with rodney hyde tuesdays and thursdays from 10 a.m you're on reality check radio it's real talk with rodney hyde when for a treat we've got a doctor and lawyer Dr. Roderick Mulgan talking to us today, and he is the nephew. His uncle was John Morgan, who is a genuine New Zealand hero who wrote a beautiful book called Man Alone, which is an amazing book. If you haven't read it, go to the library and get it and read it, and you'll probably end up buying a copy to have it and to treasure it. And also his book, A Report on Experience of His Time, in World War II in Greece, being a Greek scholar, and he died uh, in Cairo, sadly, and his little son grew up uh, to become Richard Morgan, a political scientist here in New Zealand, and his brother had a son who we're speaking to. Good morning, Roderick. Good morning. Thank you for having me on. Oh, it's wonderful. And like, I just, I get a bit of a chill to be talking to you because of when I was a kid growing up, I so loved John Mulgan's book, two books, 
and um, his life story, which was so tragic, and being mm. such an amazing scholar. It's a tremendous story. And, of course, you're a scholar yourself, being both a medical doctor and a lawyer. You normally think of choosing one or others, and you've got both. Uh, you've got a book coming up. We're going to have you back on to discuss that book. It will be of huge interest to our listeners. But what we're on about today is how the Law Society, which governs all lawyers and tells them what they can and can't do, and I guess it tells them whether they possibly can be lawyers. I don't know. You have to tell us yes, that. Yes, it does. Well, it issues practicing certificates. So yeah. if you want to practice as a lawyer, uh, not just use a law degree, but if you want to actually practice as a lawyer, you do need a practicing certificate from this outfit. So they credential all lawyers, and if you're not credentialed, you can't be one. Yes. And they can kick you out of being a lawyer. Yes. And it's being proposed that it just doesn't become a rule amongst lawyers, but it goes into statute that lawyers will be required, just get, correct me if I get the wording wrong, lawyers will be required to follow the principles of the Treaty of Waitangi. <laughs> Well, basically, yes. The report that's promoting this uses the phrase titiriti, so it's actually referring to the Maori version of the treaty that would be required to be followed, which is significant. As we know, there is debate about the difference between the two versions of the treaty. But yes, what you're saying is that there is a proposal underway. There's only a week left for lawyers to make submissions on this. And it all started around 2017 when there was publicity about big law firms mistreating young women. And an investigation into law culture was undertaken. And it's since gone off in directions that were very different from where it started. And this is one of the big things to come out of it, that lawyers should practice consistently with the principles of titiriti. Now, as we know, it's fashionable in the modern world, to stick references to the treaty, or Titariti if you want to, uh, into various mission statements and codes of practice and such like. And most of the time they don't have a lot of bite. But the thing about the law is that words do have bite. Our words have got to mean something. Now when you refer to the principles of the treaty of Waitangi, one of the problems you've got is that nobody can agree what those principles are. There's a lot of debate about what those principles are. So, for instance, it's commonly asserted that the treaty created a partnership, for instance. But then other people point out, well, you can't really be in partnership with yourself. And the state of New Zealand represents all citizens, including Maori citizens. So it can't really be in partnership with Maori citizens. And this, of course, the proposal is that there'd be two different sets of sovereignty. There'd be a state for all non-Maori citizens and a state for Maori citizens or something. But these things would suddenly become enormously significant if lawyers had to practice consistently with these principles and if lawyers could be disciplined for failing to follow these principles. What would be an example? It's wildly speculative. We just don't know what it would mean, but I'll give you an example. There is a lot of academic discussion and analysis around the idea 
that the Maori chiefs who signed the treaty did not intend to relinquish their sovereignty. Sovereignty is the foundation of law. If you go into a courtroom, that courtroom only has the power to convict people of crimes and to determine people's civil disputes and all the things it does because it represents the power of the state and the sovereignty of the state to govern its citizens. But if Maori citizens could argue they're not part of that, then lawyers might, in theory, be required to advance those arguments. Because you've got to bear in mind that lawyers are required to advance anything that might assist their client regardless of their personal beliefs. So once it becomes a duty to advance these arguments, it doesn't matter what you think privately. Now, this sounds absurd and wildly speculative, but the world is full of things that might once have been absurd. And when you put words into statute, they have to mean something. So that is one possible direction that all of this could go in. That lawyers will start saying, well, this client, Your Honor, is Maori. And according to the principles of Titariti, this, this person uh, never surrendered their sovereignty to this court. This court has no jurisdiction. Oh, it sounds a, mad. It's a, further, it's a further push, isn't it, for indigenous law? Yes. Well, that's the natural that's the natural end point of all this talk that Maori didn't s surrender their sovereignty and that what the treaty created was a partnership. If it created a partnership, you've got to have two partners. So you've got to have Maori as a separate constitutional entity from the state that represents everybody else. But how could this be a come to pass, Richard, uh, Roderick, and I'm meaning this most gen genuinely because lawyers are smart people. They're smart people with words. They have their own interests at heart. They understand rules, contracts, deals. It's their field. So how can they get themselves signing up to a statutory obligation professionally that would literally tie them in knots in ways that no one can foresee? Well, it's a good question. A, a survey of the profession's already been done, and around 44% of respondents said that they did not support this move, although 35% said that they did. Now, that would seem to be a clear signal from the profession that this isn't wanted, but the people behind it do seem determined to persist. And, I mean, as to your question, you know, is it something lawyers want? I mean, it probably isn't, but if it's imposed, it will have to be used because of course. lawyers have these duties. You, you can have to follow the be law the if you're a sub subject to professional discipline if you don't advance all the arguments available to assist your client. It's all it's the exact opposite of the rule of law. Because yes. the rule of law is that you know what the rules are ahead of time. Yes. But we're having lawyers sign up to something that they don't know what the rule's going to be, 
And everyone listening knows that this is a living, breathing thing and that your lawyer could be come under disciplinary hearing to be disbarred because they didn't uphold the principles of the treaty when these principles are ever-evolving. Yes. That's so potentially the direction we're going in, yes. It's a politi- and it'll be a political charge. Yes. It is yeah, I mean, these, these things. These things are all political. So how does it get stopped, Roderick? The Law Society is still taking submissions. We've got until the 31st of the month. So the imperative is for all the members of the Law Society and everybody who knows somebody who's a member of the Law Society, rack them up. A submission doesn't have to be long. It's online. Just make it very clear that this is not a direction that the profession wants to go in. Most of us use a lawyer at some point in our lives. This is something that impacts the lives of ordinary people one way or another over time. And if you don't want your lawyer to be captured by political ideology, the window for acting is closing. So what we can't, I can't make a submission, but anyone no, I know you, who's you, a lawyer. You, you could approach your lawyer and say, I've heard about this. I'd like you to do something about it. Well, we could even ask him what his view is on it or her yes. view, because if they're for it, I'm not in for them. <laughs> no, I'm yeah. not my lawyer. <laughs> and if they say, oh, I haven't looked into it, they're no longer my lawyer. So, so I want my lawyer to say it's mad because that's the definition of a good lawyer who can understand these things. Mm-hmm. And I will say, well, what are you proposing to do about it? And all they need to do is say, well, I'll make a submission or I have made a submission. Yes. That should be your requirement of your lawyer as a matter of course. You would hope so, wouldn't you? You would hope so because um, it is so unbelievably balmy. And, of course, we know that the Law Society and lawyers, like all professional bodies, have been caught up in avoiding a media attack. Mm -hmm. So it's very easy to come under attack for having a sexist, racist, bullying culture, whatever, and Mm -hmm. impossible, impossible to defend yourself. Yes. So what we're having is a situation where these credentialist agencies rush ahead of everything to be more me too than the next person so that they immunize themselves against an attack without concerning themselves with the consequences. Mm -hmm. Because to do otherwise is to leave yourself vulnerable, but to do so is to put yourself in unknown territory. We've seen this with the rainbow tick, for example, Mm -hmm. where it seems a very easy thing to do. You get the rainbow tick and then you're safe but then you find yourself having to do X, Y, Z because you're signed up. Absolutely. Okay, listeners, there you go. It's a challenge for you. Um, Imagine it. Your lawyer, his or her responsibility will not be to you as a client, which it is now. It'll be first and foremost to the principles of the treaty. You might say to yourself, 
hmm, I wonder what they are. No one knows. And the people that are saying they know, they're saying things that are nonsense and extremely dangerous. And because what you have is not the rule of law, but the rule of the political powerful. And the political powerful isn't you who's seeking to talk to your lawyer. The law exists to protect the politically weak. Not under this proposal. Roderick, anything you'd like to add for people to what they can do? Look, lobbying is all that's available at this point. And that's really why we're putting the message out there. Please use all the levers available to make it clear to the law society that this is not a healthy development in the rule of law of New Zealand. That was Dr. Roderick Morgan, a medical doctor, a lawyer, a person who's prepared to stand up for the good of our country and for the good of the law profession. I'm sure he's going to take some hits for that. Uh, Roderick, we'd like you back to keep us updated on this. If there's any more uh, developments, please contact us and we'll give you whatever time you need to keep us abreast of it because it's just another one of those very important things that's happening in New Zealand. Thank you for your time. You're very generous, Rodney. Thank you. Okay, everyone, uh, stay tuned. Uh, send us a text, 2057. Uh, email me at inbox at radiocheck.radio. That was Roderick Milgan. Uh, amazingly to me, nephew of John Milgan, the author and scholar and soldier. This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10 a.m., you're on Rally Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. I do so love this radio show, and I love the listeners. You know, I don't know if there's one or two or three, but I I get texts and emails, and it means such a lot to me. And because I feel part of a community, and I can share things and build a community of people who think like us. So do send us a text, 2057, or an email, inbox at realitycheck.radio, because um, I will share them with the audience. But I wanted to share this with you, because I don't know, I love it when this, what we call this woke left, these people who are all virtue signaling and performative, and they all get so up in arms, and they're pointing the finger at everyone, and you know, you feel as though you're in the French Reign of Terror or the Chinese Red Guards are running through the streets, pulling people out of their beds and and shooting them or executing them or <laughs> guillotining them or something because you're just by definition wrong. But they then all turn in on themselves. And I've got this sort of wonderful example that was in Stuff newspaper, which I only read uh, to laugh at, uh, to get an insight on the latest madness. And I've got this one. And it's the wonderful Sophie Hanford, who you may not have heard of, uh, but she's a councillor in the Kapiti Coast, I think. And she is the founder, stuff tells us, of the strike for climate in Aotearoa, New Zealand, which means... I mean, even to say, even to say it is funny because she got all the kids to go on strike, right? Which is not to show up at school, 
So all these kids played truant, and apparently the a lot of the teachers and um, school supported them because this was doing real stuff, being active, stopping climate change. Quite how you stop the climate from changing by going on strike is a mystery to all of us, but apparently that was sending a message to the world and these kids going on strike. Now, it's important to the story. I wouldn't normally draw attention to this, but it's important to the story that Sophie is now 21 years old. So here's this 21-year-old asking kids to go on strike for the day, and on the May the 26th, they're going to, quote, in her words, return to the streets to show their anger. And this is a bit I wouldn't normally refer to. She is very, very white. And so that is quite important because after they all went on strike, the uh, school strike climate change activism got into a little trouble. And the Auckland chapter, you're going to love this, the Auckland chapter of the International Youth Climate Action Group School Strike for Climate had to admit to itself that it was racist and that it disbanded itself. So it turns out that this, so these kids don't go to school for a day. They parade up and down the streets complaining and whining and saying that we must take action now because it's, she says, Uh, Sophie Hanford says, we know there is an urgent need for climate action on the ever-intensifying climate crisis. It's always a crisis. So it's a climate crisis. We're having a crisis in our climate, and it's intensifying, and it's getting worse and worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. And so we need urgently for global action. Of course, none of that is true. There is no climate crisis. It's not more intensifying. There's no data that that's happening at all. A lot of people are saying it, and you can make a model that says it, but in the real world, it's not happening. And there's no global action that could be done that would change the climate. But anyway, she's saying that even if all that were true, that we needed this urgent need for action, how does going not going to school help? This is this Greta Thunberg thing, isn't it? You don't go to school and you somehow help. No, you don't go to school. You just become ill-educated, right? And it sort of shows in a way. Anyway, Sophie has got into trouble because they were going on strike, but in organizing that strike, they discovered that they were racist and the Auckland chapter disbanded itself because... It turns out that Maori and Pacific people within the movement had been saying for some time that they were shut out and marginalised and that the School Strike for Climate Auckland group said that it had been, quote, racist and white-dominated and therefore it had to be dissolved that they had avoided, ignored, and tokenized black, indigenous, 
and people of color voices and demands, especially those of Pacifica and Maori individuals in the climate activism space. By the way, if anyone's talking about space, there's sort of a question mark about them, right? Because it's climate activism space. Dear heaven. Anyway, this Auckland group goes on to say that it was people of colour that they were disproportionately affected by climate change. So people in New Zealand who are coloured, you struggle with this, don't you? I'm just trying to get me. So people in New Zealand who are of a colour are disproportionately affected by climate change. And so that means that the fight for climate justice should be led by their voices and needs, not Pākehā ones. Right? So I don't even know what climate justice means, right? It just sounds good, right? So whether temperature justice. So anyway, climate justice needs people of colour to lead it because it can't be led by people not of colour like Sophie. Because while she might mean well, she's not disproportionately affected by it. So therefore she should be ruled out. And so this Auckland group went on to say that they'd caused all this hurt and this burnout and this trauma and they were just full of apology for trying to deal with climate justice and the crisis when they were white and that the only people that can deal with this crisis are people of colour. And so then they have people of colour standing up. There's this Anne Valley. And uh, they have a group called the In Youth Indig Indigenous Climate Action Group. And he or she has explained, quote, we've faced a lot of groups and a lot of people in the climate space that are racist. Mm -hmm. Probably from the top. We see that all the time. And Vili and Vili said Pakeha-dominated climate groups get all the airtime and resources, but they do not grasp the legacy of colonial violence and oppression. And I must admit, when I first saw that Greta Thunberg, I thought, you know, I get it she's not going to school, and I get it that she's fighting for climate justice, but she's white. And so I didn't follow her because she didn't grasp the legacy of colonial violence and oppression. She couldn't, even if she tried. And so I said, nope, I'm waiting. Anyway, these other groups are stepping up. Young Wellington City Councillor Tamitha Paul said racism was common in environmental groups in Aotearoa. I've definitely seen it as a young Maori person who's now responsible for climate change actions in Wellington and seeing the layers of discrimination that exists within these movements. 
It's not just a school strikes, you know. It is everywhere. No, that's why I no, just stay away. She supports the disbanding and said Maori, Pacific, disabled, and poor people would bear the brunt of the impact of climate change, so they must be at the forefront of the fight. Yes. Disabled people and the poor people and Marion Pacific, they're gonna suffer. And so they've got to lead it. And she says the struggle for the environment was intrinsically linked with capitalism, racism, and all the systemic failures in society. If you try to attack one without taking into account the others, then you will inevitably fail because you're not dismantling the system that is enabling this destruction to occur. Hmm. So, listeners, we have to get rid of everything, capitalism, racism, systemic failures, and dismantle the system. I don't know what we replace it with, but it's something. Um, But we get rid of everything and start again. So that's why it's important that people with lived experience and real-life experience of that systemic inequality are the ones to lead the solutions on those. Quite. we got to have people with lived experience and real-life experience. And like what we've got now, and I'm sorry to say this, Sophie Hanford, but you're 21 years old and you're white. Right? You haven't had the lived experience of systemic inequality. Anyway, they go on, this group in Auckland, it's racism is not good for the movement. Ableism is not good for the movement. Sexism, transphobia and homophobia. It means that if that means groups have to disband so the movement can be strengthened, that's a win for us. So the group that is going on strike from schools for the day and parading around, going truant for a day and playing around, they aren't strong enough because they're racist, ableist, sexist, transphobic, and homophobic. And so it has to be, the group itself has to be ripped apart and replaced by another group that isn't those things. And um, we then get this, that, Uh, South Auckland, predominantly Maori and Pacifica, are low-lying and vulnerable to sea level rise. So these people can't afford to move away and buy homes elsewhere. They're also more likely to be working jobs that require commuting long distances where public transport is expensive or difficult to access. So Luhama Talupi, I'm sorry, is a wave maker, an indigenous conception of an activist. Tulupi said, without Indigenous people leading the conversation on climate, the same inequalities would remain entrenched. And this is the interesting thing, because Brianna Fruin from the Pacific Climate Warriors, it's a lot of groups, but the important thing to know is that you need to be following the groups with lived experience who have experienced systemic racism if you're going to deal with climate change. Yeah, you can have your ETS and you can tax this and you can give $140 million to New Zealand Steel and all of that, right? 
But that isn't going to work because it's not being led by people of colour who are going to suffer the disproportionate impacts. And so this climate activist, Brona Fruin, from the Pacific Climate Warriors, said for those in the Pacific, climate change wasn't some futuristic movie thing. It is happening now. Like, they're suffering now, right? And she said that what you have to do is learn from Indigenous people to tackle the climate crisis. She said, sustainability isn't necessarily something that we're trying to get to, but something that we're trying to get back to. Yeah. Because if you look at it, their actual argument is with industrialization and trade and world markets and science and technology because all those things fueled by fossil fuels have to go and we return to some time when we lived as a simple agrarian culture working every hour that God gives us just to survive, hunter-gathering or primitive farming with, I guess, the wheel and not much else. And so we go back now. So I get that, right, because if fossil fuels are damaging the planet, burning off, then stop it. But then, of course, you can't maintain the population of the world or the standard of living of the world or the standard of living that people aspire to. So you do have to return back to a low-technology lifestyle. And that's what these Indigenous people are saying. And I'm all for that, uh, at least they're consistent. But I want to go back now to Sophie Hanford. So she wants a call for action on Friday the 26th of May, we will return to the streets because we know there is an urgent need for global action on the ever-intensifying climate crisis. Oh, but she does recognise that there's been a problem and that she was challenged and that she had faced internal conflict around our approach, our style, our leadership. We witnessed the consequences of division within climate activism, which at times clouded the core mission. But, Sophie says, we paused, we listened, and we learned. And we learned and become better informed about the role of colonialization in Aotearoa's history, as well as the conscious and unconscious bias of the privilege. Concepts inextricably connected to the climate crisis. But we have to get back to the streets, she says, and she has overcome it. And although climate activism, according to people of colour, has to be led by Indigenous voices and people of colour, Sophie Hanford is back trying to lead it, saying that I might be white, but I've overcome it because I've studied the role of colonialism and my 
unconscious and conscious bias of privilege. She's paused, she's listened, she's learned, and she understands it now, so she's back. And she's saying that the treaty, re-indigenization, and our obligations to the Pacific need to be foundational to local climate action. It is crucial, Sophie says, to recognize the deep-rooted wisdom and knowledge held by Pacifica and Maori communities and how colonization has sidelined this for extractive resource-intensive systems. We need to elevate this expertise so we can embrace a more holistic approach to environmental protection and activism. And we're going to strike. We are not going to school. So this 21-year-old is asking primary and high school kids not to go to school, but to stay home. No, take to the streets. That's right. They're not to stay home. They're to take to the streets. And here are the demands. We're demanding that the government reduce emissions now and strive for a real zero emissions, Aotearoa, by 2030, instead of passing our responsibility overseas through offsets. We're also calling on our leaders to 100% transition to regenerative agriculture by 2030, prioritise treaty-based, treaty-centred climate justice. Prioritise treaty-centred climate justice and lower the voting age to 16. Treaty-centred climate justice. It doesn't sort of have that ring of let my people go. <laughs> <laughs> free this or treat treaty-centered climate justice. That's our slogan. But of course, she's only she can't actually be a leader because the people with lived experience of systemic racism have spoken. And we have to wait for indigenous people to come through and call for this day of strike. Now, of course, I'm taking the mickey and it's all nonsense because wouldn't you just rather that Sophie and her mates did what something useful for the world, produce something that people want, uh, figure out solutions to problems, um, study science and technology and learn answers to the world's problems, which means going to school, by the way. Or how about this? How about just instead of striking for a day, living for a day without the benefits of fossil fuel? Just try that. Just try and think about what you'd have to give up for the day to not benefit from what you're trying to stop. Instead of getting governments to make us live fossil free and therefore live extremely impoverished life, how about you live fossil free for a day or a week or the rest of your life? And tell us about it. Tell us how you got on. Tell us how it was done. Teach us. Teach us by example. Lead us onto the beaches. Lead us over the top. Lead us to those sunny uplands of which you speak. 
rather than just do nothing by striking, waving banners and demanding that government impoverish. Show us the way. Show some leadership. We don't care whether you're Indigenous or not. We just want to see how it's done. Show us. You're on Reality Check Radio. It's been Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Thank you for listening. Do send us a text, 2057, or an email at inbox at realitycheck.radio. Thank you for listening. I so love the feedback, and I love having listeners just sharing. And I want to be able to share more, so we need to figure out having more interaction. But in the meantime, send a text, send an email. Thank you. You're listening to Real Talk on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Oh, it's realitycheck.radio, Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. I love this mailbag. I love going through my emails and texts. I've been a bit of a hermit and a recluse, but I love the listeners to Reality Check Radio because, well, they've got questions too, and and, uh, they don't just go along with the, the mob. And I love that. Uh, here's an email. Thanks, Rodney, for a great program. I've been listening to RCR both in Wales and now in New Zealand, visiting my children. I'm listening to you as I cycle my 20 kilometers daily spin, totally unaided by electricity, statins, uppers, downers, or COVID experimental vaccines. All the best wishes for the fantastic RCR and hopes for a more sane government after October. Jeremy. Yeah, well, we all hope for that. <laughs> Uh, I'm not sure that the what's on offer is going to um, be more sane. Uh, he's got this wonderful, um, instead of a pronoun, he's got this little saying, it's impossible to comply your way out of tyranny. Ain't that the truth? Hi, Rodney. Great show as usual. Yes, many questions. Uh, that was my soliloquy where I said, I've still got questions. Just not going to let it slip about the whole COVID response. Yes, many questions. Why did the government spend billions of dollars on a medicine that wasn't wanted or needed by most, and now that we have a genuine crisis, flooding, the money's gone, and the government is going to close the roads because they can't afford to fix them. Ain't that the truth? Good on you, Rodney Hyde. My wife and I want the answers to those questions too, those questions about the COVID response. I'm the son of a returned soldier, and boy, am I proud of you. Oh, thank you. Uh, This from Jackie. Dear Rodney, thank you for summarising so many of the ridiculous and hurtful aspects of the past three COVID years and all the scars left behind for many New Zealanders. Being a mandated person was really something else and the crazy COVID rules. No wonder we still feel stuck sometimes and I too still feel the need for those questions to be answered and the ultimate betrayal tricking New Zealanders to get jabbed with something which definitely wasn't a vaccine. He'd still need to roll for that. Thank you, Rodney, because we haven't forgotten, and you're voicing that for many of us. Kind regards, Jackie. I, too, have been totally stuck. You made me cry. You give me hope. Bless you, Oliver and Rodney. Ollie, that was uh, Oliver Hartwich uh, we interviewed last week. Hi, Rodney. It's hard to move on. I feel exactly the same. Much love. Actually, it was Tuesday that I interviewed Oliver, now that I reflect on it. Uh, thank you, Rodney, for your interviews and questions, which are so pertinent. Well done. None of us can move on because there's more coming, especially after the World Health Organization meeting at the end of this month, as mentioned by the RCR speaker yesterday. Here's another. Hi, I love listening to Oliver. The country needs more people like him. Dave, don't we just? 
I really love the Rodney and Oliver interview. Oliver is so right, so right about so many things. But to the comment about there's no downside to the truth, isn't that what we had to learn the hard way over the last three years? People hate the truth. Great interview anyway. Good on you guys, Mike. Here's one from Sandra. I really enjoyed listening to Alison Paulet on Rodney's show. Fascinating and also a little emotional for me due to my father's involvement in the pioneering work with fungi, fungi. Fungi. Rodney, by the way, please work on your pronunciation. It's fungi. Okay, fungi. Peter Buchanan worked with my father many years ago. Peter is a lovely man and would make for another great guest on RCR. I loved Alison's enthusiasm by checking out her books, and please say hi to Peter for me, Sandra. Rodney, a note for Alison, wonderful presentation on, I've got to say this right, fungi. But when talking about Maori wisdom on the topic, she needs to avoid calling them indigenous people. They did, of course, migrate to New Zealand, as with all the peoples here. Christine, well, I guess that's true. But you can still say they were here first, I guess. Hi, folks. I have a question that has puzzled me for years, and it is this. As a young lad, I noticed that the council had tar-sealed a portion of footpath. In the main street of Rotorua that was close to a cabbage tree, and some three weeks later, a small white mushroom had neatly lifted itself up through the one-inch thick asphalt, with the punched-out piece still sitting on its canopy. How did it generate the hydraulic pressure to achieve this? Have wondered about this for many years, Tony. Well, Tony, I actually <laughs> sent that off to Alison, and she said, you have to talk to our hydraulic engineer because she doesn't know how fungi, fungi, mm do it either so wonderful nature and the puzzle remains you with real talk with rodney hyde that was the mailbag reality check radio flick is a tech 2057 email me inbox at reality check radio like i said uh, it keeps me going getting your emails and texts because how much fun do we have and how naughty are we because occasionally we step outside the official narrative. Occasionally, we question the one source of truth. Occasionally, we don't agree with our government or the opposition. Thank you for tuning in. Talk soon. You've heard the words open, fair, both sides of the story. It's easy to say them, but practicing them often seems like a bridge too far. New Zealand, it's time for a reality check. Reality check. RCR, Reality Check Radio. Rational discussion, common sense, and open debate for real. With me, Paul Brennan. You know, you just can't make this stuff up. You couldn't write the script. Veteran broadcaster Peter Williams. Where is the evidence they actually make a difference? It turns out that was a very fair question to ask. Taking on the mainstream, Chantel Baker. Mainstream media, as usual, in their little perch. The man who cares so much and whose background is for real, Rodney Hyde. The doctors don't believe them. They can't get ACC. They can't work. They're told it's all in their head. Along with a raft of contributors to inform, entertain and bring the truth back to New Zealand media. It's time for a reality check, all right. RCR, Reality Check Radio at www.realitycheck.radio. We've arrived. You're on Reality Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Oh, 
And we're privileged to have uh, economist Martin Lally joining us. And it's like a economics seminar we're about to have because economics is not what you think it is. You know, we tend to have these people telling us about what's going to happen in the world. To me, they're not really economists. But what's great about economics is explaining the behavior that we observe, predicting human behavior, but also thinking rationally about decisions that normally we wouldn't think could be subject to a proper analysis. And to an economist like Martin, it's just obvious and second nature because they've been trained in this stuff, but to the rest of us, it's a bit of a struggle. Now, let me set this up. You're sitting there in Wellington, and you might be part of the council or you might be asked for your opinion. And the question is, should we cut the speed limit? Because the Wellington City Council is proposing to cut the speed limit to 30 kilometres through most Wellington streets on the basis that it'll make the streets safer. And you're looking at that and you're thinking, oh, I don't know, I guess it'd be good to have make the streets safer, but why 30, why not zero? Like, how do you, where do you draw the line? Uh, how much safer will it be? Will, will people's lives be safe? What do we know? And we've got Martin to walk us through how he, as an economist, thinks about this question. Good morning, Martin. Good morning, Rodney. So to a normal person, that would seem to be a conundrum, but you can break it down for us, can't you, in terms of how to think about this in a sensible way. And you can do that even without a precise understanding of the numbers because you can, even with a ballpark figures, you can demonstrate whether it's a good idea or not, right? Indeed. So tell me how you do that. Well, the first thing is to look at um, how many lives you'd save by um, by cutting the speed limit from 50k to 30k. And a good starting point would be to say how many lives would be saved if we cut the speed to zero. In other words, we eliminated all pedestrian and uh, cyclist deaths on the reasonable assumption that pedestrian and cycle deaths are um, all or almost entirely uh, caused by collisions with cars. And the place to go to would be to have a look at what deaths have been for pedestrians and cyclists um, in uh, in Wellington City in uh, recent times on on an annual basis. And um, I'm not able to get data for Wellington City, there's data for the Wellington region and data for New Zealand. So it'd be reasonable to take the data for New Zealand and scale it by the um, proportion of New Zealand's population that's accounted for by Wellington City. So the country has a population of uh, 5 million. Wellington City has about 250,000 people. So that's about 5% of the country's population. So you could reasonably suppose that would uh, account for 5% of the country's deaths. Now, how many pedestrians die in a typical um, year in New Zealand? Well, New Zealand Transport Authority's got data on that. 
about 25 a year. It's not very many. Um, that, that Just stopping you there, Martin, and that, that's an amazing breakdown already, isn't it? Because, um, by the way, you're on Reality Check Radio, Real Talk with Rodney Hart. I'm talking to economist Martin Lally, and we're just understanding how an economist thinks about a question. So you've already got an understanding that we know that 25 people as pedestrians are killed on average a year in New Zealand. I wonder how many of those, we don't know the answer, the city councils would even know that number. I doubt they would because that's an extraordinary in itself because if I'd been asked, I would have said, hmm, 100? I, I wouldn't have had a clue and it's 25. So carry on. I'm sorry to interrupt, but yeah, no, no, it's an amazing fine. figure like just to ask that question. Mm, yeah, so, um, and that's not just the latest year, that's been for the past several years, it's been about 25 a year. And Wellington City accounts for, and we're talking Wellington City, we're not talking the Wellington region, the mm -hmm. Wellington City Council only has powers over the Wellington City area. So that's about 5% of New Zealand's population. So there's about one pedestrian death a year in the Wellington City Council area. And the absolute best you could hope for if you um, reduce the speed limit would be to eliminate that one death. That's the absolute because, most. Because you couldn't do better than that mm. and you're not likely to do that well. Mm, indeed. Um, reducing the speed limit um, to 30, there's still going to be um, some deaths, even if everyone conforms to 30K. And, of course, there's lots of people who are not going to conform to 30K. And the kind of people who are, I suspect, most likely to kill someone in a car, people who are drunk, uh, young hoons, etc., um, they're the people who are least likely to change their behaviour as a result of the speed limit going from 50 to 30. So the absolute best-case scenario is to eliminate that one death. Now, um, what, what, what's a life worth? Well, that seems like a horrible question to ask, but that is a question that um, entities in the um, central government area are assessing all the time. And um, there are a variety of numbers in the, um, in the central government area, but the only one that's actually based on um, survey evidence, looking at what people would be willing to pay to, to reduce deaths, is a recent uh, survey that was um, commissioned by uh, New Zealand Transport Authority. And they uh, value uh, a life of a, a person of average age and good health at about $12 million. And relative to other government agencies, that's the highest figure we've got. Um, Treasury values a life at about a million. Uh, the medical system values a life at about two million. So if we use the highest number we've got amongst government entities that are actually putting a value on life, we've got $12 million. So the life you're saving is worth about $12 million, um, the, the pedestrian life. Now, in addition to um, saving lives, you'll also uh, reduce the number of um, people who, um, pedestrians who suffer from accidents, um, uh, serious accidents, so less serious accidents. Um, uh, Again, the New Zealand Transport Authority, their commission study puts a value on those things as well. So it values a, um, a serious accident at about 600,000 and a minor accident at about 60,000. So you add that all up um, and um, using data on the number of deaths in the country times 5%, the number of serious accidents in the country times 5%, the number of less uh, serious accidents, the deaths are multiplied by 12 million, 
the serious accidents by 600,000, you add it all up, um, you get about, uh, about 20 million. You do the same for cyclists, repeat exactly the same process. You get something like about 30 million. That's the absolute best case you could hope for by reducing the speed limit from 50K to 30K. You eliminate all those deaths and and, and accidents. Mm -hmm. Now, that's an absolute best case. Uh, um, You couldn't really expect to get anywhere near that. Uh, A sort of starting point might be half of that, that you could eliminate half of these deaths, half of these serious accidents and so forth. Well, then the value of the lives you've saved, the avoided accidents and so forth, is not 30 mil, it's about uh, about 15 mil. Now, what are the costs? Well, some signs are going to have to be changed, but that's, that's minor. The really big cost in this area is that if you lower the speed limit from 50 to 30K, people are going to spend more time travelling around. Now, you might say, as the mayor does of Wellington City, that that doesn't matter. Safety is important. The value of people's time is nothing. She's reported. Oh, really? Yeah, she's reported in the press as saying that that's just not important. Well, why not just make everyone walk? Indeed, indeed. Uh, We'll we'll come back to that later. But let's um, just um, um, looking um, at the issue here um, that I'm focusing on. We'll come back later to, you know, why 30K, why not 20K, why not zero? But just taking the 30K uh, point, the question then is what's the value of that time? Well, again, the New Zealand Transport Authority in their analysis on the value of lives, they also look at the value of time. So, for example, if you build a new motorway that takes you from A to B, it gets people there more quickly than the old one. And for people in Wellington, the the outstanding example of that is the Transmission Gully motorway. The whole point of that is to get people from A to B more quickly. Um, Auckland, of course, has its counterparts to, to that as well. And people value time. Um, and the surveys that the New Zealand Transport Authority have done indicates that people are valuing time at about 20 bucks an hour. So we've got a quarter of a million people in Wellington. Um, the result of um, lowering the speed limit is they're going to spend more time uh, on the road getting from A to B. Now, let's just, just to start the analysis, suppose on average... Wellingtonians will, as a result of changing the speed limit from 50 to 30k, they'll spend an extra minute a day. Now, could hardly be any less than that. It can't be seconds. It's got to be in the minutes. Um, Let's just call it a minute a day. Well, that's um, 365 minutes a year. That's, That's six hours a year. And each of those hours is worth 20 bucks. And what's the number of people? Well, it's about a quarter of a million people in Wellington. Add it all up, that's 25 million. So even if the time, the extra time people spend on the roads in Wellington is only one minute per day extra on average, that's worth 25 million, Uh, whereas the earlier um, calculation on the uh, benefits of the saved lives and so forth, it, it can't be any more than about 15 million. So straight away, even with this, what I think is a ridiculously low uh, figure of one minute per day extra time spent on the road, it doesn't pass the test even with such a ridiculously low figure. If it's two minutes a day, then the um, the value of people's time instead of being 25 million that's been uh, chewed up, it's 50 million. If it's three minutes a day, it's 75 million. So the the cost-benefit ratio just looks worse and worse and worse. Now, these aren't the idle musings of of Martin Lally, economist. The 
New Zealand Transport Authority has gone to a great deal of trouble to value life and to value people's time for precisely this sort of purpose. They go to all this trouble, they produce this manual for the purpose of making decisions about motorways in New Zealand, but then you get councillors, people like Tori Farno, Mayor of Wellington, she's just quoted as saying, people's time is worth nothing. The priority is to, to save our children. Um, now, it's, it's this, this disconnect between what a rational government entity is doing and what um, these um, these councillors in, in cities around the country, presumably totally oblivious to that work, uh, or at least they were totally oblivious to it until a week ago. Um, they're not oblivious to it now because I sent them all, every councillor in Wellington, an email um, advising them about the New Zealand Transport Authority's latest work and the implications of it for their proposal. Did I even get an acknowledgement of receipt? No, I didn't. Goodness me. Now, You've always, as an economist, you're always worried because it strikes me that economics and politics are at war because politics is always about absolutes, you know. Um, one life, other people's time and convenience doesn't enter into it. You know, one life, a pedestrian debt is too many or... Uh, Every life lost is a tragedy, and we'll do everything we can to stop that life being lost, which is not true. No mm -hmm. one lives like that. No society lives like that. It sounds good when you hear it, but it makes for absurd decision-making, doesn't it? Indeed. In this case here, um, there's nothing inherently absurd about a proposal to reduce um, speeds from no. 50 to 30k until you do the analysis. The analysis will tell you whether it's a good idea or not, and the analysis might lead to the conclusion that it is a good idea um, to reduce it from 50 to 30k, but my first cut at it, so to speak, suggests um, that it isn't. And even the councillors um, who voted for this clearly do not believe that time is worth nothing and that deaths are the absolute priority because if that were the case, they'd just ban cars in the city altogether. And they're not doing that. So they are, in fact, trading off the value of people's time against the value of lives. It's just that they're being utterly dishonest by pretending that they're doing otherwise. And that trade-off, uh, here's another interesting concept, isn't it, that first of all, there is always a trade-off, and we had this pretense, which we covered with you previously, about the lockdowns, that it didn't matter. We'd lock down the whole country to save a life sort of thing. It, it, the cost and the benefits weren't considered when clearly they should be. There's also this interesting concept, Martin, that relates to this, and it's about decision-making at the margin, it's not like an absolute. It's always a little bit more or a little bit less, and what does that mean? Can you explain that for us? Uh, well, um, yes. Um, we currently have a, a speed limit of uh, 50K in most parts of Wellington City. There are some places that um, uh, have been brought down to 30k. These are uh, places where there are collections of shops on both sides of the road um, and um, presumably lots of people um, uh, congregate in those areas. 
Um, so if you are going to change the status quo, the natural um, supposition would be that the, the optimal value isn't too very far isn't too far from it. So you think about a small change um, from that um, that current position, and you might implement that small change, and then you gather some more data. So you might, for example, change the speed limit from fifty uh, k to thirty k, and just selected areas where there's high traffic densities, and then you'd assess whether um, that had uh, saved any lives. And if it had saved quite a lot of lives, that would provide you with further information to assess whether we might make a, another move in that particular direction. Mm. Um, so it, the analysis is, is naturally um, incremental. You start with your current position and, and look to make um, small changes, one side or other of that, gather more data, and then uh, perhaps make another change. The Have you done a lot of road safety work, Martin, in terms of economic analysis? Um, no, um, this is uh, not um, an area that I've had um, any previous okay. involvement. It's the, so the tools, the tools are, are, are the same. Because it's such, it's such an interesting area because the other thing that you learn through economics is thinking about incentives and thinking about the change in behaviour that a rule um, makes because it seems to me and I think to economists, that every time you make a rule, you lead people to rely on the rule and not their own responsibility for their decision-making. You know, it's sort of like, I'll drive at 50 unless the government says otherwise, rather than coming up, it's raining, oh, there's a school ahead, oh, I notice it's 3 o'clock, oh, I better slow down to 20 k's. No, no, the government says it's okay for 50. And there's this perverse result, and the one I particularly observe these days is my father taught me to drive, you know, 60-odd years ago, and he always, he was a professional driver, professional truck driver, he always said, you have to assume when you go around a blind corner, that there's something on the road. <laughs> like you, you don't tear around a blind corner assuming there to be nothing there. He said you have to be ready to stop. If you can't see what's ahead, slow down so you can stop in the distance available to you. Now, what I notice these days is we expect there to be cones warning us of something up ahead. And if there aren't cones, it's safe. And we drive like, people drive like maniacs on blind corners because no one's warning them not to. And it's the opposite of what my father taught me. And it seems to me these days, people have become less responsible for their own driving and more reliant on being warned. Does that make sense? Well, yes, um, and there's quite a bit of um, research uh, on that question, the extent to which um, people change their behaviour in the presence of uh, rules which are designed to enhance safety. And, um, yeah, the rule is um, um, will enhance safety by X if everyone um, uh, 
continues to behave as before, subject to obeying the new rule. But if they become less um, careful as a result of the safety rule, feeling that everything's fine, um, then there's some um, offset in the other direction. For example, seatbelts. Um, if you um, mandate seatbelts, well, um, it seems like um, people will um, definitely be safer than before, but only if they continue to drive in the same way as before. Um, the, um, the evidence is that at least some people, um, in the presence of these kinds of safety interventions, they drive less safely than before because they feel that, well, the seatbelt will save me from, from my foolishness. But yes, there is some offset. Um, what the net effect is has to be assessed on a case-by-case -case basis. Because the, the classic, the, the important point, I think, that relates to this particular one is if you... Um, um, bring the speed limit down from um, 50 to 30, people might very well feel, well, at 30 it's safe so I can just um, play on my cell phone and so forth, whereas yes. they might not have done that at 50k. They might have uh, taken yes. more care. Yes. There's this interesting thing, isn't it, because implicit in choosing to do something, whether it's go out and risk getting COVID or hop in our car and drive to the shops, we are implicitly acknowledging and accepting a certain degree of risk. And we don't necessarily calculate it, but it's there. And that's when you observe that, and the, the, the suggestion is that, as you say, make the roads safer, people adjust so they're taking on board the same risk as before. Well, that may or may not be the case. As I say, that has to be assessed. On yeah, the because there's a, you know the interesting studies, and if not, I'll share them with you, about um, ABS braking. This yeah. is one of my favourite examples because the uh, Mercedes invented uh, ABS braking, which saves you from your car skidding. And if you swap from a car that's – all cars these days have ABS braking, so the wheels won't lock – and you go to a car without them, you get quite a shock because you can't brake while turning your wheels. You'll skid out of the corner. Uh, you can drive with ABS braking and people brake right through the corner. Mm -hmm. And Mercedes invented this technology, thought it was so amazing, they allowed everyone to copy it, all the other car makers to copy it because they didn't want to make it exclusive to Mercedes. And so it was copied. And there's been a number of studies done particularly with taxi drivers, where they divided them in half and said, you know, these guys over here have got uh, ABS braking and these guys haven't, and they knew, and the accident rate wasn't much different. But what changed was the type of accident. So the taxis with ABS braking tended to roll around corners rather than slide mm. because you'd have ABS braking and you'd approach a corner faster. And it's these, it's so, to me, that is so amazingly fascinating about human behaviour. But it is nevertheless worth noting that um, the number of people who die on New Zealand roads is now about 300 a year. It, yes. Back in the 70s, uh, when it peaked, it was about 800 a year when the population was only a fraction of what it is now. So clearly the 
um, the something's caused that, and the obvious explanation for it is cars are safer, mm-hmm. um, perhaps people are, are driving more safely, um, mm-hmm. uh, and, and so forth. So the, the, even if the safety improvements have led to people changing their behaviours in the riskier direction, the overall effect clearly is still um, uh, producing lower death rates. Do you, have you looked at, and this is a question without um, not allowing you to pre-formulate your answer, but I often wondered what the injury level is like, because obviously not only we've got more population, we'd definitely be driving more kilometres a year, um, more kilometre hours, Um, and yes, the death rate's gone down, which is a terrific success and we've had so much go on safer roads uh better warnings safe much safer cars much much safer cars goodness me you know uh any little child in a car unrestrained used to be just straight through the window uh the front window and killed uh whereas now you're sitting there cocooned you've got crunch bars you've got seat belts you've got airbags um, the car's been tested and tested and tested in accident situations. The roads are much better. The brakes are much better. The tyres are much better. All these things. but uh, And also cell phones and rapid response and helicopters and medical science in terms of dealing with someone injured. I wonder what injury, what's happening to injuries, whether they've dropped or people are surviving crashes better but still injured. Um, I, I would expect that if you can get to people uh, in a serious accident more quickly, um, you will convert some deaths into serious injuries. So mm. I would expect, not having seen the data, I would expect the ratio of deaths to serious injuries is lower now than it used to be. Mm. And, and it's, the same on, it's the same on a battlefield. Um, but battlefield 200 years ago, if you were seriously injured, virtually all of those people would have died yes. soon afterwards from hypothermia or shock or whatever. But uh, the ratio of uh, deaths to serious injuries on the battlefield, at least if you're in the American Army or a similar army, is uh, way, way, way below one. It's, it's the same point. Yes, a simple gunshot would kill you. Mm-hmm. Uh, it might just take a week. Mm-hmm. Um, also, tell me, you mentioned about NZTA, who are the most sophisticated, I think, at this in terms of getting a feel for the costs and benefits of lives saved. You mentioned a huge array of numbers. So from what you said earlier, you said NZTA are using a figure of 12 point something million per life saved, but Treasury had a different number, medical policy analysts had a different number, what were those differences? And that must be quite significant because across government decision-making, they're not making, if they're using this, they're not making sensible decisions across portfolios. Yeah. yeah. So coming back to the numbers, um, the New Zealand Transport Authority, the study they've commissioned, it values the life of a, um, a road victim at about 12 and a half million. And it's, it's, it's sufficient to uh, just focus on um, 
um, treat all victims as if they were the same. Some of them will be young, some of them will be old, but it all kind of washes out. A eh? sort of an average victim on the road is about 40 years of age. If they're killed, they lose about 40 years of life. And typically these people are in pretty good health. If you go to the medical system, the situation is quite different. If you're thinking about a medical intervention to save the lives of people, typically the people whose lives you're going to save with that medical intervention are not people typically who've got another 40 years to go. Mm. It might be a child, a one-year-old child, who um, if you intervene and save their life, that gives them another 80. But a more typical case in the medical system is you are saving the life, that is to say extending the life of someone who's uh, who's relatively old and who hasn't got that much um, in the tank, that many years left in the tank. So what the medical system does is instead of valuing lives, it values life years. So if we engage in some intervention that will extend the life of some person by three years, you've got a value for each uh, life year, you multiply it by three to get the value of the life years saved. Um, and the medical system, the, the piece of it that um, quantifies the value of lives is a program that's um, financed by the government at Otago University called the Burden of Disease Epidemiology, version three. And um, the people who are running that program, names that uh, would be familiar to many New Zealanders, professors Michael Baker and Nick Wilson, um, very high-profile figures during the COVID um, era. Um, they are using a, a value of a life year of GDP per capita, as it's GDP uh, per head of population in New Zealand. Um, now, GDP per capita in New Zealand is currently about $70,000. So they're valuing uh, the, um, the life year of a, of a healthy person at about $70,000. Now, to turn that into the value of the life of a person who's got 40 years left in the tank and is currently pretty healthy, that's a discounting exercise over 40 years and there's some debate within reasonable bounds about what the right discount rate is, but it basically turns GDP per capita of $70,000 into a, a value of a life of about $2.3 million. And that's only one-sixth, one-fifth of what the NZTA is doing. And the NZTA is arriving at its figure um, through a, a study that's been commissioned and it's surveyed hundreds of New Zealanders about how much they'd be willing to pay to, um, um, to choose road A versus road B. And these roads are different in terms of their risks of, of you dying. Um, um, so that's a, um, a conventional and a quite rational way of, of approaching it. Whereas this GDP per capita, well, why is GDP per capita um, such, mm. a, such a good figure? Um, the, the medical academics who are using this figure, um, um, they seem to believe it comes from a World Health Organization's um, um, recommendation, but it doesn't. The World Health Organization's recommendation is a GDP from GDP per capita to three times GDP per capita. So the medical academics are taking the lower bound on that um, and coming up with a value of a life of an average person of about 2.3 mil. So that's the medical academics in this burden of disease epidemiology program. And the purpose of that program is to advise 
government on which kinds of interventions would make sense. So these academics are studying various um, health interventions and they're saying this one passes the test, we recommend it, this one doesn't, don't do that one, okay? So uh, they're not determining what happens in the hospital system, but they're providing recommendations that are at least based on, a, on the valuation of a life. So that's them at 2.3 million. And then you've got Treasury, who have a, a template for cost-benefit analysis in the public sector, and sometimes projects that take place in the public sector, one of the things that might be the principal um, benefit from a project, but might just be a secondary benefit, that some lives would be saved. That is to say, some, some lives would be extended. No life can ever be saved. We all die in the end. It's just a question of extending lives. So they value a life year at the um, average ratio of cost to life years saved that uh, arises out of Pharmac. And so Pharmac's ratio on average of cost to life years saved is about $35,000. Um, so Treasury just takes that average, $35,000 per life year. That's only about half what the medical academics are doing. So it leads to the value of a life of an average person of about $1.1, $1.2 million. So you've got these three parts of the public sector. You've got Treasury, you've got the medical academics who are advising on what the hospital system should be doing, and then you've got um, the New Zealand Transport Authority with roading projects, and they're, they're using radically different numbers. And only one of those numbers, the process by which it's derived, makes any sense. Indeed. And in fact, if they were doing this consistently, at the margin, which is a million dollars to spend, say, you take the million off Pharmac and give it to the wider medical authorities because they can, they've got a higher threshold. And at the margin, you take it off the medical authorities and give it to Pharmac. No, no, it should be the other way around. Other way around. Yes, the medical um, people and Treasury are valued oh, of life too yes, cheaply. Yes, yes, yes. Yes. So if they, the proper thing to do would be. Quite to, right. Take, I do apologise. I've confused yeah. everyone. Yes. Yeah. If, you take, if you take um, NZTA's figure of 12 million and say that's the right figure that everyone should be using, that means that there'll be a whole series of projects that far. Yes. Um, currently doesn't do, but could do, Correct. and the medical system could do, that would be viable once you've valued the life Correct. considerably higher. Yes. Oh, my God, I had that completely wrong. I do apologise to listeners because here's me trying to use Martin to elucidate what's going on, and I've confused the situation because relative, just looking at the numbers, not saying who's right and who's wrong, uh, roading is justifying roading expenditure with a different criterion to Pharmac and the medical authorities, and they're saying a life on a road is worth hmm, up to 10 times uh, what it is in the medical system 
all things. Let, let, me, let me just clarify that Pharmac does not itself um, put a, a formal value on life. What it okay. does is it um, seeks a budget from the government and currently it gets about a billion. And having got that budget, what Pharmac then does is basically it ranks possible projects in terms of the uh, cost versus the life saved and uses up its budget most got efficiently, it. so to speak. So Pharmac doesn't actually put a value on life, but the average that results from that gets used by Treasury and got then it. put into their cost-benefit model. And they're saying this is how politicians, by giving money to Pharmac, are valuing a human life. Yes, but Pharmac's only a very small part of um, the whole public sector. What's more, Pharmac's number that Treasury uses is the average. What you should be using is the mm. marginal figure, not mm. the average figure. Mm. Want the figure at the margin. Um, so there could reason. be huge gains yes. in terms of either or both lives saved and money expenditured, expended just by uh, getting and applying a consistent figure. The startling um, example, the startling implication of all of this is that if NZTA's figure were applied to the medical system and Pharmac, that would justify a considerable increase in their budgets, yes. a considerable and, increase. And you could take that off roads. Uh, well, I, I was saying if you applied Roding's figure, um, if you instead said we're not going to spend any more or less, we're just going to allocate it more evenly, then you would have, yes. a, in effect, a, a value of a life of maybe $6 million, which means less roading projects, more medical projects. So to sum up, the important thing that we've seen here, Martin, is you start off thinking about uh, reducing a speed limit and you understand the benefits in terms of life saved and uh, accidents and injuries reduced. And then you say, but there's a cost to this, and the cost is extra time spent on the bus or in the car uh, or taxi or whatever. Um, and you say, well, how do I make these comparable? We make them comparable by using dollars, because that's how we compare the cost of things. And you say, yes, but how do we value a life? Well, we can, and here are the techniques that we use to do that. And you've discussed some of them. So we get the lives saved and the injuries prevented. We can get a dollar value on that. And then you can come along and you can say, well, what's an hour of a person's time worth? We can get a value for that. And then we can start making the comparison on that decision to see if it's worthwhile. And then we can do that across the board. We could do that for, do we fund this drug? Do we spend more on hospitals? Do we fund this bridge project? Do we straighten this road? Do we build this tunnel? And to the extent that you're saving lives and reducing injury, we can get a dollar value. And then what we're saying is, well, hang on, if you lock across all these items of expenditure, to the extent that you're putting in lives saved, injuries prevented, have the same number, make it consistent. And that would provide for a much better expenditure and a much better result, correct? Yes, indeed. And don't listen to this poor old radio host because he got it completely upside down 
and was fortunately rescued by Martin because I was just looking at those numbers and I confused myself. So again, that ability to think reasonably and sensibly about this and then to debate the things that can be debated and you never fall down that trap of the mayor of Wellington, Tory Tory Farnow, is it? Farnow, yeah. Farnow saying, oh, I don't care how much it costs the voters and time because, what, reducing the speed limit and saving lives is of infinite value. Just to um, to see if I've uh, this is a, this is a quote for, uh, attributed to Tory Farno in a, a staff article on the twenty fourth of April. It's a bit of a no brainer. What is more important, the safety of our children and pedestrians, or an inconvenience to someone's trip? For me, I'm always going to go down the safety route. So that's a quote from Tory Farmer, the Mayor of Wellington. Now, not only do I think it's wrong, even if she believes it, but she doesn't believe it. Because if she really did believe it, she'd ban cars in Wellington City, and she's not going to do that. And she would never get in one. Indeed. And that's part of the great thing about thinking about these things is that in economics, we learn to understand decision-making by what people do rather than what they say. Right? I suspect if we ever did get to a world in which um, cars were banned in uh, Wellington City, the Wellington City Council would write an exemption for the mayor and councillors. Yeah, well, I, I like it how it gets pointed out too that um, these celebrities um, like uh, Meghan Markle and Prince Harry want to ban guns every which way and complain about guns endlessly and then go to court so men with guns <laughs> Men with guns can wander, follow them around to protect them. Um, it's we do see a stunning hypocrisy from our leaders of all stars and all stripes uh, in this world, and it takes a Martin Lally to cut through and to provide that analysis. Martin, thank you for your well, time. Well, just just let me just quickly finish off with something else. Here's an even more stunning example of yes. the hypocrisy of the Wellington City Council. Several weeks ago, um, there was another uh, waterfront death in Wellington City Council, um, somebody walking along um, the edge of the waterfront, and there are places along the waterfront in Wellington where there's a vertical drop from the walkway straight into the water of about two metres. If you've had a few drinks at a nearby bar, and there are quite a number of bars um, on the waterfront in Wellington, it's possible to wander along and fall over. And if you're fairly inebriated, um, you drown. Now, there have been um, about one, there's been about one such incident every couple of years in, in Wellington City. And recently, a member of the Wellington City Council, um, whose uh, name um, I um, regret, I cannot pull out of my um, memory at the present time, um, would like to do so to give him uh, credit, 
Um, he suggested that um, uh, guardrails be placed along the relevant section of the waterfront to save those lives. And the lives that you'd save, well, about one every two years, uh, half a life a year, that's kind of in the ballpark of the number of lives you'd save if you reduce the speed limit from 50k to 30k. Mm. But what would it cost to put up these guardrails? Um, if you look at fencing costs, just Google fencing costs, it's a Next few hundred nothing. bucks a metre. Yeah. A few hundred bucks a metre. You know, it could be a million dollars, a million and a half. The fence has a life of 40 years. For the, save, for the spending of about a million bucks, a million and a half bucks, the Wellington City Council could save about one life every two years in these sort of waterfront deaths. Uh, so that's about 20 lives over um, the 40-year life of the fence, about as many lives as you'd save in the ballpark of the speed limit changes, but at a fraction of the cost, just a million dollars. And what that does is, is uh, I should say, the Wellington City Council, Mayor uh, Farno was seemingly not in favour of that proposal from a councillor. And a person who represented the council, a person called Richard McLean, who's still employed by the Wellington City Council, he's quoted a few years ago when one of these deaths occurred and the same issue came up as saying that, well, we, we, we don't want to do that. The, um, the public wouldn't accept that. It's so funny. It seems, yeah. Now, it seems to me, as an economist, I ask myself, why are people acting differently in these two areas? Miafano and the majority of the council seem to be all in favour of uh, reducing speed limits, but apparently not in favour of putting up a fairly cheap fence that would save uh, a comparable number of lives. And the obvious explanation is that if you put up a fence, the council has to write out the cheque. Because if you lower speed limits from 50k to 30k, the people who pay for that are not the councillors having to write out a cheque and therefore have less money to spend on their cycleways or whatever. It's the general public of Wellington who bears the cost. So that's a general principle. Then, When it comes to deciding whether to do something, whether you have to pay for it or someone else pays for it is an important consideration. It is for that decision maker. And of course, you could uh, write off to the mayor and say, quote, it's a no brainer. But I doubt she'd get the uh, sarcasm that was implied. Martin, always lovely, always an insight. Thank you for sharing your time with us. You're on Real Talk with Rodney Hyde, Rally Check Radio. That was the wonderful Martin Rally, who makes economics real and allows us to think more consistently and reasonably and to see the issues when we're talking about things such as guardrails, speed limits, bridges, medical expenditure, just in terms of what the politicians themselves are saying. You're on Real Talk uh, Radio with Rodney Hyde. It's Reality Check Radio. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Real Talk on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Oh, what a great show. It's Reality Check Radio, Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. I loved every minute of it. And great guests. We had the wonderful, the incomparable, I think, uh, Dana Thompson talking about homesteading and encouraging us all. She's encouraged me to, I think, try for chooks, overcome my fear. And we had Dr. Roderick Mulgan telling us about the latest bit of madness that's going to affect lawyers and therefore affect all of us and affect the law in New Zealand. Sigh. 
endless, is it not? And just interesting for the old brain how to think about reducing speed limits and how to weigh it up, whether it's a good idea, where to set the sweet point of saving lives versus convenience, speed, time. From uh, Martin Lally, wonderful explanation. Uh, thanks for tuning in. Do send me a text, 2057. Send me an email, inbox at dot I feel so very, very privileged that you've been listening to the show. Thank you so much. Talk soon. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on RCR, Reality Check Radio. 